That's a good beer. Yeah, it's nice. Mm-hmm. No. No. Stop that right now. You can you can hold some more. Put that down. <laughs> I can normally do it. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do it now. It's going to spit beer everywhere. Good job there's a pop shield. <laughs> Don't think you need to drink more. You just need to blow it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that was a beauty. Stop it. <laughs> well done. Maybe we could form one of those jug blowing bands. And welcome to episode 96 of the New Generation Project podcast, where the heroes of Hulkamania are dead, the new generation is over, and it's time for the post-mortem. Today, we answer your burning questions about the WWF's transition between the glory days of Hulk Hogan in the 80s and the cultural phenomenon of Steve Austin in the late 90s, in an episode that we're calling 101 Questions About the New Generation, or Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Ahmed Johnson But Was Afraid to Ask. My name is Stuart Brooks, and joining me today as ever to <laughs> penetrate your eardrums are the big fella Paul Scrivens. Good, good morning slash afternoon, whatever time it is to you. And the man of a thousand beers, the booze await, Adam Wikes. Hello. How are you both doing? Not bad. Is this the earliest we've ever recorded a podcast? No, we've recorded it this time before, but it does feel like a good three years since we've yeah. recorded in the morning. It, it feels very early, which is, I guess, quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. We, we had... Had some lovely breakfast. Thank yes. you. Yeah, well, no problem, no problem. I feel a bit uh, under-rested. I had a, a very bad night's sleep last night, thanks to what I can only assume is a bin lorry and some drunks. A bin lorry? You were heard. The, were the drunks driving the bin lorry? I hope not. Wow. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Not too bad. Paul, you? I'm okay. What's been going on? Cricket. Okay, talk to us about cricket. The test series of India against England or England against India, seeing as England are the home team, has, has just concluded recently. And what a fine fifth test match of the series it was, with lots of landmarks. Talk to us about those landmarks. So England, for, for a long time, have had an opening batsman called Alistair Cook, who's broken all sorts of records. He's our leading run scorer, leading century maker, most catches, those, those kind of record. He'd had a, a dip in form uh, of late, but he decided just before the final test match that he was going to hang up his boots, internationally speaking, and and retire. And, uh, you know, everybody was, kind of, uh, I think, a little bit bittersweet about it. 
But in his last test, he scored 147 uh, in his last innings, and that was a tremendous achievement and a lovely send-off. How, how do you feel about Alistair Cook as a cricketer? Uh, fine servant to English cricket. is. I've never found him the most stylish of batsmen or my favourite to watch, yes, I'd always want him in the team. So, yeah, aesthetically not necessarily the most pleasing, but highly effective. And he's lauded, I think, as being just the most old-school cricketer we've got or right. had in recent years in terms of his willingness to dig in and just bat for long periods of time rather than play too many strokes. Sad to see him go, then? Yes and no. I think there's a, there's a huge worry about who will replace him. There's not many that are really standing up to, to take his place, but I guess Burns from Surrey is likely to get his spot. Well, I've not paid that much attention to the cricket, but it, I do watch a lot of BBC Breakfast News, so they have gone on about that an awful lot. That woman that I don't like on the news. Sally. Uh, Sally Nugent, yeah, she keeps talking about it. So Cook got a lot of coverage, and then Jimmy Anderson got a lot of coverage for becoming the best wicket-taker. He is the fourth leading wicket-taker of all time, but he is the leading wicket-taker in terms of fast bowlers overtaking Glenn McGrath. Is that because you can't bowl as long if you're a fast bowler? Was if you spin, you can generally drag your career on for a bit longer? Yeah, I think you can You can be a wily spin bowler for, for a little bit longer, but also you can bowl longer spells. So in terms of your number of overs you can get through in a match, is going to be higher than a, than a pace bowler. Mm. Yeah, grand. Well, apart from that, I've just been generally working. So that and the cricket, that's pretty much all I've got. You got some free beer. Oh, yeah, I got some free beer. Maybe my problem is I basically like, drank my brain cells away the other night. I think that is your problem. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, because I'm a shareholder for, for Brewdog, which Tom Canning's obviously a big fan of, I get like a yearly dividend. So I got a free box of their fanzine beers, which they, they release. And you know you can get those boxes of beers delivered to your door like every month. Or like so. Hello Fresh food parcels. Yeah, but better. So Brewdog started doing this one, which was £11 for three new beers, but it was every fortnight. And I've always thought that paying, I don't really spend 20 or 30 quid on beer delivered to my door every every month. Because but gladly I'll, go out and pay £80 a night out on Craftdale. Well, exactly, I'll probably go out and spend quite a bit, so I don't want more of it turning up. But I thought <laughs> maybe like £11 a month would be quite good just to get three different beers, but it's every fortnight, so I just thought it wouldn't bother. But then they sent me an email through saying, oh, it's dividend time, do you want a free box of it? I was like, yeah, I do. There's a 10% stout in there, which I'm sure will be devastating. And I hear on the rumour mill you're not buying this year's Lego Star Wars advent calendar. Yeah. Yeah, we were in Sainsbury's the other day and he broke that news to me. (laughs) (laughs) Is your spend on advent calendars going to be less than £80 this year then? Yes, because those Star Wars Lego ones are like £25 a pop. I just don't like what they've done with it. I think there's too many... I think they tend to go down themes with the Christmas ones. And so I think the theme is, like, the new films this year, so I'm not really on board with it. Have they made them cheaper, or is it the same price it was last year? Because it, it seemed a reasonable price. Was it... It, no, it's £25. So it's still the same price as they've, as they've always been, which I'd normally be up for buying if you've got some figures in there that are from the original trilogy, for example, that I actually quite want, but I don't want any of the new stuff, so I don't want to pay and spend £25 on it. The regular City Lego advent calendar is only £20, so you always pay a £5 premium on the fact that it's Star Wars branded. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it's worth it this year. Fair enough. Yeah. Hmm. What have you been up to, Stuart? I think you've probably had a more exciting time than me and Adam. 
Well, well, it sounds like it. You've watched some cricket and you got some free beer and didn't buy an advent calendar. Uh, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I haven't really been able to watch much cricket apart from a few bits of highlights, but I have been kind of Thinking following and it. maybe listening to a bit on the radio. Fair enough. I bought a PS4. Yeah, I, I was surprised to see you this morning because I see you got that new Spider-Man game that everybody's raving about. Yeah, I thought you might just be taken up with that. Yeah, basically that was the reason I bought it because that Spider-Man game looked too exciting to not play. I'm glad you bought a PS4. It is the superior console. Not sure I agree on that one, but <laughs> as it's the only one with the Spider-Man game on it, I felt the need to purchase it. But it is glorious fun. How much is that console then? So that was two six five with the game and some other bits and bobs. So, so what else does that console do? Because is it kind of a very much a media solution these days? Well, yeah, they all are, aren't they? You can watch Blu-rays, you can use Netflix, Now mm. TV, that kind of jazz on it, but. Yeah, Spider-Man was essentially the reason I bought it, and it is a ton of fun. But at the end of the month, there's also Fire Pro Wrestling out for it, so okay. maybe maybe I should pick that up. I've got to be honest, I don't know that much about Fire Pro Wrestling other than everybody raves about it. Why are they raving about it? Because it's supposedly, and I've never really played it, the superior wrestling game in terms of actual gameplay. Okay. Uh. And they've got like quite a cool creation suite where you can essentially create anybody. So it's not kind of the level of detail you'd see in a WWE 2K game, but it's kind of like almost miniature versions and you can make them look like the people they're supposed to be quite easily. Can you download other people's creations? Yeah, at the minute it looks quite complex on PS4 in that you have to log into their website on your like PC or laptop with your PSN ID. Then you have to download and then when you go back into the game they'll be there. Okay, that's quite an odd way of doing it. Yeah, but I I don't know if they're working on kind of a simplified way of of that occurring, but we'll see. But yeah, new gen podcast if anyone wants to add me on PSN, because I've got like two friends right now. One of them's Adam. I was his first friend. You you were indeed. But in addition to all of this, I went to a few wrestling shows as well. So getting back on the actual topic we're here to discuss. Hmm. Which ones were they? So I went to two RevPro TV tapings in York Hall and then the first night of the British Super J Cup on Saturday in Manchester. Ah. So with the TV tapings, what channel are they for? Have we found out sort of the details? Yeah, it's on Free Sports. I don't know that. Do I get it? Can I get it? I'm a, I'm a BT person. I'm guessing it's on Freeview and stuff like that. Fingers crossed. Yeah, so it was quite different. So the York Hall shows I've been to previously, they were kind of very star-heavy. You'd get six or seven matches, maybe, and you'd get kind of an intermission halfway through. Mm. And they were always generally full. These ones were held on like a Wednesday and Thursday night. They weren't as star-heavy because since, you know, kind of the... I guess the glory days of a couple of years ago when they had a lot of the big names on the York Hall shows, a lot of the guys have been signed up by WWE UK. Your Will Ospreys and your Marty Skulls are off in the States and Japan. So, yeah, there were a lot of names on it that you wouldn't necessarily have seen on one of those shows previously. Tickets, they priced at £15 for each night, I guess in an effort to get people there because, you know, it was on Mm. a school night and people don't always want to go out for kind of extended periods of time when they've got work the next day. So I would guess... There was probably about 500 people there each night rather than, you know, probably close to 1,200 is the fullest I've ever seen it. But they'd set it up a lot differently in terms of having to have things like TV cameras and stuff there. But yeah, both shows were an absolute slog, to be brutally honest. Hmm. So each night they taped four weeks worth of television. Wow. But they kind of 
certainly not on the first night, they didn't make it clear how the evenings were going to go. So, like I say, if you've ever been to one of those York Hall shows before, you expect three or four matches, intermission, and then a three or four matches, and then you go. This was... 14 matches on the second night and 15 matches on the first night with no kind of intermission. There was no break? No break, just keep going. Wow. So It's better than WrestleMania. Yeah, it wasn't quite that length, but it wasn't far off. <laughs> Which is fine, I guess, if you're... If you know that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So I guess the second night you, you knew what to expect. Second night kind of had an idea it was occurring, but they did also have Andy Quilden come out and explain that that was going to be the, the format of the show. But yeah, they were quite long to sit through. I mean, you could obviously wander off and go to the bar and stuff as and when you pleased, but it meant you were going to be missing something that was going on. Okay. And did that affect the crowd as it got later on in the show? Or Oh yeah, totally. So, you know, we often spoke about some of the marathon TV tapings you'd see from the WWF in the early 90s. And, you know, how did the crowd sustain themselves through, like, 28 squash matches? Well, yeah, it's actually quite difficult to maintain your interest when you're getting into, like, a fourth, fifth hour of a show and you're on, yeah, 14 or 15 matches. So be interesting when the shows make air, you know, how enthused is that crowd going to be on week four and week eight as opposed to week one and week five when it's the start of a taping? Yeah. And what about the actual quality of the shows and matches? There was some decent stuff on. So you had on the first night Chris Brooks, Jushin Liger wrestled. You had okay. Kashida, Zack Sabre Jr. wrestle. So there were some pretty pretty decent matches on. But yeah, there were several kind of squash type matches. And there were just matches with kind of lesser stars that, like I say, wouldn't have been on York Hall shows previously. Mm. So yeah, a bit, bit of a mixed bag overall. The... Super Junior show on the Saturday was a lot better, though the crowd was quite dead for that one. Really? Yeah, so that was held as part of that wrestling media con in Manchester, which was in like the middle of an industrial park, which was kind of weird. So when we drove there, we parked up and it just didn't look like anything. Mm. Like we were convinced the sat-nav had taken us to the wrong place. I had a similar thing when I went to the Cloudwater Brewery. Well, that's more (laughs) likely to be in an industrial park, Yeah, that makes more sense, mate. Completely not signposted in any sort of way though it's just like it seeming like a packing area yeah that's what this was like so that show was decent that had about 10 matches on it but again no intermission i know they're on quite a strict time schedule in terms of other events occurring on the day but yeah you just had 10 matches one after the other but we got el fantasmo bandido which was cool. very good and it, it was cool to see bandido live and again you know, I got to see Jushin Liger wrestle live three times in one week, which wow. will wow. probably be the only time in my life I ever say that. So that was pretty cool. How old is Liger now? In his 50s. Wow. Yeah. And quality match is still high? I don't yeah, obviously he's not wrestling in the same manner he was in the early to mid 90s. But yeah, he's by no means an embarrassment in the ring. So yeah, those guys were on. You had Walter in the main event oh, okay. t- tag match with Tim Thatcher against Chris Brooks and John Gresham, which was Stiff. really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, very stiff. (laughs) And you had Dave Meltzer and Pat Patterson were in the crowd as well because they were there for the Wrestling Media Con. Wow. Apparently Pat Patterson hated it. Really? (laughs) It's not his style of wrestling, is Mm. it? So, yeah, but it it was a decent show and I hear the second night was good as well, but didn't go along to see that one. Yeah, grand. So what what was your favourite match that you've seen out of those three shows then? Easily Phantasmo Bandido. Phantasmo went on to win the tournament and mm. like well-deserving. I don't know if you recall, we saw him yeah. in the Raid of Oladores yes, briefly. But he's had a real strong year based in the UK now. He's Canadian, but has kind of come and 
is now making his living over here and seems to be doing really well and had some quite cool spots and yeah was wrestling kind of in in some fairly prominent slots good but you couldn't pick up a bandido mask though no, he didn't seem to be at the tables at the end. So at the end of the show, they were very much rushing people off because there was like a Hall of Fame ceremony on afterwards where they were having Dave Meltzer, Colt Cabana and Finn Martin do speeches about being inducted into some Hall of Fame. So they were kind of rushing people off to that, but I did scan the table briefly and he wasn't there. And plus this industrial park in the middle of nowhere, which was kind of holding this event, didn't seem to have any cash points anywhere, which seems like ah. something of an oversight. But we did have a nice day, kind of went to Five Guys and had a wander around the Trafford Centre, and that's where I bought my PS4. So, yeah, oh. overall it was decent. Good, let's hear it. And I don't know if you've all spotted this, but Scott Cavaliero has made a video playlist of all the audience suggestions. I, I have very much spotted this. Have you, have you had a listen to those? Yeah, I've, I've listened to a few bits of pieces. I've not listened to the whole things because there's a lot of audio there. There is like over yeah. eight hours of audience <laughs> suggestions. But it's brilliant. I do wonder how many times Scott heard his own name on that. Scott Cavaliero. Yes, like that. But yeah, we've posted them over on our Facebook page now as well. So if you want to check those video links out, then just head there and click the link. Massive thanks to Scott for putting that together. Yeah, mm. top bloke. That must have been a quite a substantial job. Well, yeah, because there's no audience suggestions in maybe like the first... 10 episodes but then after that they're pretty much there yeah 99 of the rest of them so yeah going and getting kind of 10 15 20 minute sections out of each episode must have been yeah. quite the slog and then making them into kind of little video pieces yeah mm. thanks very much for doing that scott yeah thank you and we also need to thank everyone who listened to roy's war 5 and yeah thanks for sticking around to listen downloads on that have been pretty strong so it's nice to see that people have stuck around to listen and have enjoyed the kind of comeback episode yeah if you haven't, make sure you listen to our 18 Body Slam episode over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast and our King of Trios 2017 final review posted on soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast. I did notice that the A-team is now being shown on Spike and mm. uh, is on at six o'clock. So I actually watched half an episode yesterday. Okay. And I was pleased that it had the, you know, we were talking about in Body Slam, you don't get the great sequence where they build something. Yeah. And you did in this, but again, it was a slight disappointment. Because they took some sort of farm machinery and then turned it into a cabbage launcher. A what? A cabbage launcher. <laughs> so in order to beat the... Yeah, really weird. In order to beat the uh, evil overlords who are exploiting the vegetable pickers of the fields, <laughs> they turned this machine into a cabbage launcher. Are you sure you didn't dream this? Yeah, I totally watched it. Were they high-velocity cabbages or could they just have thrown them? I think they were supposed to be high-velocity, but... You could have probably thrown them about the same sort of rate. Mm. Mm, interesting. Mm. And if you haven't spotted already over on our Facebook page, I put something up the other day requesting help for what we're planning to do with episode 97, our best of episode. Do you have a favourite moment in the history of the show? If you do, let us know. And more importantly, let us know what episode it's in. And if you can, a timestamp. Whilst I know where something like Ken Shamrock and the dog food is, there are many other great moments that either I don't remember or don't know where they are, or I may well have forgotten that they happened. Mm. If you have the time, head on over to facebook.com slash new generation project podcast. Let us know the required info and I'll hunt it down and see whether it makes the top 50 moments. Mm. Cool. I'm quite excited about that. Got any moments you definitely want to see turn up on that? One of my personal favourite moments, just because... I don't think I might have ever laughed as hard in my life as the Baywatch episode. 
Hulk Hogan on a jet ski. Hulk Hogan on a jet ski is, <laughs> yeah, amongst my very favourite things. Adam, can you remember anything we've ever talked about? I remember Bunkhouse, Bob Bunkhouse. Yeah, keen to see that turn up. Yeah, not keen to hear my hideous hungover voice from Beware of Dog turn up, though. I feel like that will make it. I hope it doesn't. I did. Uh, I don't know how, how or why I was listening to it. it. It might be one of these things where I just was listening to something different, possibly even a cricket podcast the other day, and fell asleep and woke up to the episode where I bought you the Easter eggs, and I was trying to open mine, and I smashed it, and it fragmented into the spinal column. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that one? It's quite an early one. I, I remember it now that you say yeah, it, but I yeah, remember that. I'd completely forgotten that that ever happened. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so that was quite amusing. So, when we originally conceived this wrap-up show, I was unsure of what format it would take, whether we'd just discuss each year in sequence, whether we'd hand out a bunch of different awards, or whether we'd just take a number of topics and have discussions around each in kind of a sequential manner. Well, turns out you guys made the format real easy by asking a ton of really interesting questions, so somewhere close to 250 in total. I've tried to pick the 101 that I think should generate some interesting chatter. If I have duplicated questions, I apologise, but I think I've only done that once, maybe twice tops, because going (laughs) through often those lists of things are quite time-consuming, and yeah, you kind of, when you're doing 101, you might not remember that you've already put something in there. So, here we go with 101 questions about the new generation. Mm. Number one, Matthew J. Who from the new generation would have done well in the Attitude Era, in your opinion, and what stars do you think could have been successful moving from one promotion to the other, either way from WWF to WCW? Well, I thought that in terms of in the Attitude Era, I thought the pre-kidney bashing Ahmed would have done quite well. Okay. I think in a different sort of like style of promotion where his madcap antics could have really fit in well, he might have been, you know, a decent challenger, like either probably probably in the main title race, actually. I think he would have slotted in there quite nicely. I also think that he probably could have done quite well in WCW had he gone there when he wasn't like 200 pounds overweight in 1999 and actually had gone there when he was a, a decent force to be reckoned with so what you're saying is if he'd have debuted at say survivor series 98 instead of survivor series 95 yes then uh, i think and he would have continued on that he would have gained enough traction i think the more adult sort of like audiences would have really got on board with him and he probably would have done really quite well in terms of somebody who i think would have done well in the attitude i thought brian pillman yeah i think he just that character would have works brilliantly in terms of somebody moving from wwf to wcw i'd have enjoyed seeing owen over there people like jericho benoit i think would have been good opponents and some of the the cruisers i think would have worked well with him in terms of somebody moving back over from wcw to wwf i've chosen a tag team who have already been in the wwf the steiner brothers but at the time when furnace and lafon were in the wwf because i think that's something that i'd have like to have happened yeah i think that i've got that combination somewhere in one of my later answers for yeah i would have liked to have seen those two teams face off very Mm. much so so he was only with us very briefly in the new generation as a wrestler but reading through newsletters from the time it always interests me whenever the name macho man randy savage comes up in terms of possibly going back to the wwf 
we saw a little of the kind of wild character he became in WCW and his feud with Diamond Dallas Page. So I think seeing him in the Attitude Era alongside the likes of Steve Austin and The Rock would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. Another name I've mentioned previously as someone I think would have fit in the Attitude Era is Razor Ramon. I really think that had he stayed on the straight and narrow, it wouldn't have been too much of a character stretch for Razor to adapt to the era that immediately followed his WWF run. In terms of someone moving from the WWF to WCW and being successful, I think had WCW been able to get Yokozuna in early 95, maybe through to like mid-96, you would have seen him have a sustained run against Hulk Hogan, if just so Hogan could get his win back. Yeah. Mm. And he totally would have been in the Dungeon of Doom. Undeservedly so. I also, as a side note, thought that maybe people like Giant Gonzalez and Bastian Berger could have just slid into the oddities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I actually think, not I a bad shout. They're probably a very good fit. How, how big are the oddities going to get? Well, if you start shoehorning every weird person <laughs> in there, the maps are massive. Could you imagine a stable that's got like Kurgan, Giant Gonzalez and Bastian Booger in it? And giant Silver. They'd become a force to be reckoned with. Number two, Matthew Mihalovich. What wrestler or wrestlers would you have liked to see have a main title run? Well, I've got three names. Owen, Vader and Razor. Yeah, so again, I'll go with Razor Ramon. I think had he stayed in 1996, I felt like they would have turned him heel and had him face Sean for the title. It would have been interesting to see the dynamic that they would have with Sean as the face and Razor as the heel. Yeah. Because they were kind of always the other way around or they were both baby faces. For patriotism's sake as well, yeah, give Bulldog a run with the title. Why not? <laughs> uh, I had a few names on there, so I've got Owen and Vader as well. I'm just sticking with the armoured theme. I'd have liked to see him as champion. Yeah. And, uh, and Bam Bam, because he kind of he had that main event and then it just seemed to fizzle out. Can you imagine an alternate universe where Raw opens with 20-minute Armour Johnson promos? Yes. Number three, CJ Fleck. Did the match quality improve over the era or get worse? The latest episode is a sign that the product was moving in a story direction, as you discussed. But was there a consistent direction over the course of the new generation era? I feel like in terms of television, the matches definitely got worse, I think. 1994 has some real high points as far as TV matches go, but by 1998, the television wrestling is just a different beast like we discussed last episode. Yeah. Yeah, the matches there serve a purpose really only to get storylines over. And I guess in some ways you can look at that as a good thing because there are almost no matches that are happening for no reason. But it means like a lot of them are very short, a lot of the men with run-ins, a lot of the men with DQs, and a lot of them kind of, yeah, don't get a chance to build into anything decent. As far as pay-per-views go, I think the wrestling probably got better overall, but some of the latter shows we watched didn't reached the peaks of Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart at their best. So although something like No Way Out of Texas, which we all enjoyed, was a decent show, like, did it have a killer blowaway match like we'd see from Bret in 94 or Shawn in 95, 96? No, it didn't. My answer's rather shorter, up and down, really. (laughs) (laughs) My feeling was that probably over the the course of things, I, I felt the main events for me improved generally speaking it is you know alan's right there is some up and downs my other feeling though is that the lower and mid cards there was probably a slight decline yeah i mean in 97 some of the undercards we saw were were quite shocking yes and it's especially it felt like in the second half of the year like so you'd get a show like bad blood with a great main event but almost everything underneath was dog shit absolutely 
And and some of those shows where I think back to some of these slightly early ones, you, you'd occasionally get a reasonable match, maybe first or second on the card. You know, it wouldn't be brilliant, but it'd be kind of okay or steady, whereas a lot of the later ones were just not great at all. Number four, Stan Kingston. Did you enjoy the WWF in your house pay-per-views? Yes and no. <laughs> this uh, is going to be all your answers. But the thing is, like, yeah, I did. Like, we got Mind Games. That was great. But then, no, I didn't, because we got In Your House 4, which was shit. So they, they were not a consistent thing. I'll say what I did enjoy about them was the two-hour format of the, the earlier ones. I loved that as an actual format for a, for a pay-per-view, because it's just the right time to fit in a load of really good stuff but not get tired with it. I completely agree. It is essentially a mixed bag, but, yeah, the best part of it was was the idea of having that shorter format show. And it also does mean that when you get to one of the big four pay-per-views, it does stand out. Yeah, it felt different. Mm. Yeah, I, I've got a similar note in that I enjoyed watching the two-hour shows as they mostly felt like they flew by. Even if something was bad or uninteresting, you know, the match would be maybe 10 minutes tops and the segment itself would be 15 minutes. My other main answer would be, if either Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels wrestled, yes. If they didn't, the shows could be quite dire. Mm. So, yeah, you brought up In Your House 4. That was a terrible show because neither Bret nor Shawn were on it. Bret was on commentary, but neither of them wrestled. Mm. Obviously, Shawn gave away the IC title, but you would get shows like, you know, the first In Your House, Bret versus Akushi. The rest of the card, not that strong, but that was great. In Your House 2, Michaels versus Jarrett. The rest of the show... Yeah, so-so, but that was great. So generally, if one of those two guys was having a match on those two-hour shows, you knew you had something to look forward to. Am I misremembering, but did Brett pull double duty on one of the early in your houses? He pulls double duty on the first one, yeah. He wrestles Jerry Lawler and then wrestles Hakushi. Or in fact, no, the other way around. He wrestles Hakushi first and mm. then Jerry Lawler. Imagine like, what weird thing it would have been if neither of those two were wrestling during this whole period. Yeah, I struggle to think who would have kind of filled those slots in would terms you, of having those killer matches. Yeah, would you have had any good matches? Well, you, you would have, you would have had some, but you wouldn't have had the high points, and you would have just filled it with other people. I don't know who they would have filled the space with. Godwins and Body Donners. There you go. Number five, Don Manos. When looking at the timeline of the new generation, when would you say that the WWF started to lose relevance in pop culture? Or did this start earlier than 1993? I felt by the time we started, it wasn't relevant. Yeah, I agree. I think it starts earlier than 93. In the US, I would guess it probably starts to kick in around maybe even as early as 90 or 91. But in the UK, the pop culture bubble for the WWF bursts once SummerSlam 92 is over. Like, that's its real high point. And then, yeah, it sort of starts to trickle off from there. Yeah, so I, I understand this from my own personal viewpoint of when I was a kid. I got into the Hulkamania era of wrestling through friends because the figures were everywhere, those Hasbro figures. I had friends that had Sky Television, so they were watching it. People bought the videotapes. There was a lot of interest, certainly, in in the the youth and the circles that I was moving at that time in it. But that really just evaporated. And part of that, I always think, is the fact that I kind of grew up. But I think part of it just wasn't as prevalent in society anymore. I had friends that went to that SummerSlam 92 and they said that it was great and it was a big point, but that was almost like just the blowout to everything and then people just stopped yeah. like paying attention to it. Number six, Ray Smith. 
Was Goldust versus Roddy Piper in the Hollywood backlot brawl from WrestleMania 12 the most bizarre series of events slash match that you guys witnessed in the timeline? If not, what is the most bizarre match you guys have watched from this timeline? I know we enjoyed it, but when you actually stop and think about it, wrestling in a hog pen is pretty fucking surreal with live bigs. Mm. Yes, I've got that as just a weird match and it's when they're, they're clutching at straws. What can we do? Uh, a hog pen? He's a farmer? Yeah, get some pigs in. It seems like a really bad idea and it turns out that it in is. terms of like yeah, Triple H's infection, that it was a really bad idea, but it actually turned out to be quite an enjoyable match. There's a couple of others that I thought of, like the crybaby match I thought was strange. Yeah. I mm-hmm. thought that was a really peculiar stipulation in a match. I don't... I know we discussed that neither of those wanted to do it. Yeah. And is this just a Vincism where he thinks that'll be a good idea? Uh, but, but, I, it, but it's weird. But I think it's pertinent to that story that they were telling. Yeah, but it's just weird. It is weird. Also, midget clowns, midget kings. Yeah, definitely weird. And anything the bulldog did. <laughs> <laughs> My picks were Goldust versus Warrior. Yeah, that was bizarre. Oh, yeah, that was strange. I know it's not WWF, but it's the eight-on-two cage match from... <laughs> what what pay-per-view was it? Uncensored. Uncensored, yeah. That um, triple-decker cage of death. Because I actually just couldn't understand what the rules were. <laughs> I don't and think anybody did. I don't think the participants... <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I thought that was, that was odd. Seven. Corey C. Lim. What would you have liked to see Vader do in his WWF run? I always felt he was underused, and now that he's passed, I'm curious what you guys would have liked to see him do. I would have preferred to have seen him as essentially like what he started out as, which is an unbeatable monster, yeah. but in a much more prolonged way. Capture the title, hold it for nine months, do a real sort of long build in it, then anyone that beats him, no matter who they are, they're sort of shot right up to the top. Just have him as a more relevant character. I'm probably going to be inconsistent without my comments through the night, but I think that's consistent with me. Um <laughs> I, I've, when I thought about it, I, I would like to see him have a long IC title reign where he is booked. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that? Uh, where he is booked really strong, just beats everybody, but they keep him away from perhaps the, the top one or two stars in the company. So he has a long streak, and then after that streak, he then graduates to have a title shot uh, at the main event. So I think the first six months of Vader's run are actually pretty solid. He has the debut at the Rumble, has the angle where he takes out Gorilla Monsoon, the very natural feud with the Okazuna, and then goes on to challenge Sean at SummerSlam. It's probably there that the whole thing goes off the rails, but it's interesting to wonder where things would have gone if he'd have beaten Sean, defending the strap against Taker, returning Brett. Other than those two and maybe Sid and Sean, I'm not sure who he would have had runs on top against. But if you had patience with it and presented Vader as a monster, you could have potentially built to Sean challenging him back for the title at WrestleMania 13. Yeah. Number eight, Andrew Webster. Who do you think was the most underutilised in the new generation era? I've got a slew of names. A slew? A slew. <laughs> it's a bit like a slew. Okay. Vader, is, I think we've kind of just touched on although he got a reasonable go he didn't really get pushed as he could um heavenly bodies just because i wanted to mention them um <laughs> i put doa and bariquas but i think i was having a bit of fun with that um <laughs> I, I, I do think and i actually think this is quite a good chat savage from the start of our timeline yeah was very underused furnace and the fond because they 
they should have got more. And I actually think it's a bit of an aside one. To some extent, Sonny, who was an excellent manager when she came in, but never really got to work with any of the big names. Yeah, so by the the time you get to mid-96 or late-96 and she stops managing, they really have that extended period of time, i.e. 1997, where they really don't know what to do with her. They Mm. kind of have her come out and guest ring announce or guest commentate or something, and she just doesn't seem to really have a well-defined role through that entire year. Or ref a midgets match. Or ref a midgets match, yeah, exactly. And I guess that's just down to the fact by the time 97 rolls around, they're far more interested in the new toy which is Sable. Mm. I've got down Bam Bam Bigelow. Yeah. yeah. Always felt like someone who should and could have achieved more. I know it seems odd to say that somebody who main evented WrestleMania was underutilised, but I always feel like with his initial heel run, he's reduced to feuding with like mid to low level baby faces like Tonka and Doink, rather than being portrayed as a monster heel. So I can't remember if we discussed around WrestleMania 9 time when we did that, like why on earth was Bam Bam not being used as kind of a foil for Taker? Like, he was credible enough as a monster, he had size, he had athletic ability, but he's just not on the card, and instead you get Taker Giant Gonzalez, which is fucking rubbish. So, yeah, like, Bam Bam definitely feels like a guy they could have done more with, especially, like, we know what happens with his babyface run, he he just gets his balls cut off immediately because he's not in with Sean and Diesel. Mm Mm-hmm. I think you two have covered most of the main names because they do underutilise loads of people at the expense of whoever is kind of like their flavour. Say Adam Bomb, massively underutilised. Yeah. When we saw, we really liked him, but he's gone again. He falls victim to the kind of click thing again, doesn't he? And from a very selfish point, I wanted to see more Manta because I wanted to see that big bull's head. <laughs> Not a great wrestler. I just wanted to see him walk out in that, but I never got to see it. Number nine, Will Johnson. If you were to give someone a list of three matches to watch to get a flavour of what the new generation was like, what would they be? So I've gone with Bret Hart versus the One Two Three Kid from Raw, Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon from WrestleMania Ten, and Skip versus Barry Horowitz from SummerSlam oh, 1995. Right. So, 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 so this was the problem that I had doing this: is that if your job is to give somebody a flavour. It's a different question to if you give somebody three matches to sell them the new generation. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what I found very difficult. What did you come up with, Adam? Brett versus Owen from WrestleMania 10. Sean versus Diesel at Good Friends Better Enemies. Oh, you do mm. love that match. I do love that match. Good match. And Hogpen match player. <laughs> Imagine if that was Teddy Long's thing. <laughs> I'm going to put you in Hogpen match player. With The Undertaker. <laughs> with The Undertaker. <laughs> Is The Undertaker the least likely person to ever appear in a Hogpen match? He's certainly the least likely person to ever appear in a bra and panties match. (laughs) Not that he did appear in a bra and panties (laughs) match. That I know of. I tried to pick out three good matches initially from my, uh, what what I'd almost consider three different parts of the new generation. So, Brett versus Owen from WrestleMania. I thought the final four match was quite interesting given the mix of the people in there and I felt... Sean against Mankind was worth look for mind games. But it was difficult because I then have three other bits that I thought, well, I should probably take one of those good matches out and, and either put in one of the Gang Wars matches. <laughs> Just one, any of them. Yeah, any of them. <laughs> doesn't well. matter, does it? A Goldust match or Mabel against Xavier Vega. <laughs> but... That is definitely, if you don't want anyone to ever watch any of the new generation, sell them on a Bariquas match. <laughs> well, it, it'd be quite... Inter- I think it's a hard 
tasked to try and represent the new generation in three matches. I think if you were to build up a card of this is what to expect, as in getting to see kind of the the good, the bad, and the just plain weird. Yeah. That would have perhaps been an easier task. Well, see, that's why I went with kind of Skip versus Barry Horowitz, because mm-hmm. I think if you're going to look at outside of the usual Bretts, Sean's, Owens, Kids, Razor, Diesels, like I think that's quite a fun match from an undercard that kind of gives you a flavour of some of the odd characters you would get in that time period. Yeah. So you've got kind of fitness guru against, well, Jewish person. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way of saying it. There's really, no other way of saying yeah. it. That's his character, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Number 10, Harry Green. If you had to choose a singular moment from when the new generation ended and the Attitude Era started, not necessarily WrestleMania 14, when would that be? I can't really pinpoint an exact moment, but for me it was the time when the build-up to Sean against Brett started getting a bit more edgy and personal on TV with some of their comments towards each other. Possibly the moment where DX opened that episode of Raw with their sweary promo. Hmm, see, I've gone a bit earlier than both of you there. I've gone with Brett versus Austin at WrestleMania 13. Yeah. Like, I think that's the first moment in terms of matches. You know, we yeah. have Final Four the previous month, but the the double turn and the match itself and Shamrock's participation as special guest referee all feel like stuff you would see in the Attitude Era. Yeah, that's true. Oh, what about the time when Sable came out in that sack? Yeah, possibly that. All right. Number 11. Joe Alexander Evans. Why didn't Max Moon get a bigger push? Now, I'll come out just for a start and say, I've got no idea. I'm leaving this one to Stuart. Well, I've got the answer. Go on, then. He didn't need a push because he had a rocket. (laughs) (laughs) I've got the answer. He died on the way back to his home planet. (laughs) I thought you'd have something better than that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, number 12, Dave Burnham. Who carried the best foreign object during this period and why? I've got two listed. Jim Cornette's tennis racket, because it's actually quite useful to just whack people with. Yeah. Like, it has a handle. It's quite useful. (laughs) And, shudder, Paul Bearer's urn. It it (laughs) must be a great object, because every fucker tries stealing it for about two years. (laughs) That is great logic, I like that. I put... Ahmed's fucking plank. Because <laughs> it's hilarious. I've put the slot bucket. Because yeah. I actually think it's it's fits in with their gimmick perfectly and it's so different. But you do realise it was filled with like ejaculation and turd and all sorts. Or, or bits of cabbage. <laughs> bits you of just cabbage think and porridge. The, the, the cuttings from the kitchen. Yeah, it was, yeah. Okay. Like a, um, an early compost. number 13 harry green again how could the light heavyweight division succeed if at all time and effort (laughs) (laughs) is is that your answer to life the answer to that question i've put in my extensive notes the need to keep the division separate and not job out everybody in that division really a wider pool of talent would also help because there's just not enough people in the division to keep anything interesting for a sustained period of time. Honestly, I think it was destined to fail from the start. It always came across as something Vince was doing because WCW had done it successfully rather than something he actively wanted to do. Mm. So it was almost like, yeah, they have these people, 
on their show, we should just do it, but we're not going to pay any attention to it or care about it at all. As we discussed, yeah, last episode, it never had the quantity or quality of performers or the focus required to make it successful. So I can't remember all eight names in that tournament to crown the champion, but you've got people like Scott Taylor, who, yeah, fine performer, but at the time was a nobody. I think you've got like Devon Storm and and just people like that. Yeah. In it. Like It's not like a tournament where you've got the likes of Guerrero, Malenko, Mysterio, Juventud, Psychosis. Like It's just a different yeah. kind of calibre of performer, certainly at that time anyway. So yeah, I think it was doomed from the second it appeared. Number 14, Elliot Bastiani. What are your thoughts on Carl Ouellette's transformation from Quebecer to Pirate to his current form? So have you seen much of what he's done this year? I've seen nothing, which is why I'm kind of passing this one your way, because I don't know what his current form is. I've, I've seen pictures of his match at spring break. Yeah. And I have seen that powerbomb that he did on Cajun Crawdad from <laughs> King of Trios. But I've not watched King of Trios yet. I've, I've got a weekend where Mrs. Scrivens is away coming up and I'm hoping that I'll get through a couple of nights then. Yeah, I've watched night one of that, which includes that tremendous powerbomb. Mm. So, yeah, his kind of comeback, if you like, seemed to begin at spring break where he has this match with Walter where, yeah, Walter chops the fuck out of him and he's doing moonsaults off the top rope to the floor and, and all sorts. It's quite surreal to see this this comeback occur. Like it's it feels very out of left field. How mm. old is he? Fifty something. Because <laughs> that wow. that Walter match was really one of the most talked about things from WrestleMania weekend. Oh yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, totally. I'm guessing neither of you saw. He was doing like a training video online the other week prior to whatever match it was he was having at the most recent Joey Janela show, the one where he faced Hakushi. And it's this really weird training video where he's lifting up kind of these weights and standing on a wooden crate. And every now and again, he'll move out of the way. And the guy who's training him starts throwing darts at a dartboard. And then eventually he moves back to lifting up the weights and the guy carries on throwing darts at the dartboard and they just land in his chest. And you can see like he's got like six darts just in his... In his Whoa. chest, just blood this, dripping out of this them. This is Quebec Pierre. This is Quebec Pierre. Oh. <laughs> is that the way you stay in shape? I guess. Scrivens. <laughs> I'm gonna lob darts at you. No. <laughs> but apparently been toiling away on kind of Canadian indies for years and yeah, for whatever reason Joey Janela has kind of got wind of it and has done seems to have done quite a lot for him. I mean, as we're recording it's Battle of Los Angeles weekend and he's participating in that. Yeah. yeah that's is... that's amazing. Because we're always a big fan of his, I think. Yeah. When, whenever he turned up, because he, he was quite rotund. Uh, he, was, he was quite heavy set, wasn't he? But he was always doing like really interesting mm. moves. Yeah. He was very athletic uh, for yeah, his size. And we really liked him. But he's not one of those people that when we see him and he goes away that you think he's going to have a comeback in 2018. Yeah, no, you really wouldn't. Yeah. Crazy. Strange. Number 15, Oliver Voilance. Best job gimmicks? The Undertaker. Definitely a job. <laughs> yeah, I, I had that. And Paul Bearer. Bidman, plumber, and surreal film director. Is that oh, yeah. gold dust? It's Marlena, isn't it? Isn't that a job? Oh, she sits, her job? sits right, on the director's yeah, yeah. chair and smokes a cigar. Oh, yeah, fair point. The, the executioner? That is also a job, yeah. <laughs> but but it was really kind of from the executioner from from a bygone age. Yes, it's a historical employment. Yes. He looks a bit like that one in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yes. What? 
<laughs> have you never seen Blazing Saddles? I've heard of it. You, you would have... I think you'd be horrified by it, actually. What happens? Just, just watch just it. Just watch it. It's, it. If it helps, if it makes you want to watch it, it's where Mongo got his nickname. Yes. Is it? Well yeah. worth watching for Mongo. Okay. And if you've never seen a man punch a horse... <laughs> right in the face. <laughs> what? <laughs> Number 16, Dave Heath. It might have already been asked, but between the dips into WCW alongside the WWF, how do the two compare? Was WCW worth their winning streak, or did the new generation hold up better overall? Well, basically, I wanted WCW's undercard with a WWF main event. Yeah, I think that's what we all wanted, really, because when we got more into watching them side by side, you see that the WCW undercards are fantastic, and it's full of talent, it's really interesting matches, and it progresses up to a Hulk Hogan shitfest. But in the WWF, you've got these lacklustre undercards with these amazing main events. So, yeah, that is what you want to see. You'd ideally want to see a combination of them. Yeah, they've both got their merits. Looking back, it's easy to see why WCW dominated when the NWO hit. It felt massive in a way that the WWF didn't in late 96, early 97. However, as the year went on, the WWF got more and more momentum, even if the quality of the wrestling on the whole wasn't great outside of the main events. How enamoured you are with WCW from mid-97 onwards will depend how much you can tolerate Hogan and company. But that said, yeah, as you've both mentioned, the WCW undercard matches we saw with the likes of Ray, Malenko, Guerrero, Benoit, Jericho and others definitely holds up better than the WWF undercard stuff. As far as main events go, yeah, the WWF ones are the bouts I choose to go back and watch. And even going back further, if you're talking kind of like 1994 when Hogan turns up, yeah, I'd, I'd pick the WWF over WCW then. Mm-hmm. Number 17, Matt Lewinsky. Who do you think would have gotten a better chance had the click not blackballed them? Shane Douglas. Adam Bomb. Bam Bam Bigelow. Mm. Right, question number 18. Colin Middleton. Should Lex Luger have won the WWF title at SummerSlam in 1993? Could you fancy book his title run after SummerSlam 1993 to WrestleMania 10? Should he have won the title no no he shouldn't <laughs> his change from narcissist to patriotic american bus riding hero was in <laughs> no way organic and felt totally forced yeah like it's literally he just steps off that helicopter wearing an american shirt and it's like oh, i suppose i've got to like you now so no i don't think he should have i mean the whole story of him supposedly going out and telling people that he was going to win the title and that's the reason they didn't put it on him may or may not be true but i kind of feel like it's definitely the right decision to have not had him win it having him celebrate the count out win is what really makes him look like a numpty <laughs> like yeah you, you've you've not won anything and I, I think the other thing is certainly in that kind of era i, I would say from maybe wrestlemania four perhaps all the way up to ten like wrestlemania always kind of felt about like these triumphant moments so yeah at four you get savage winning the title at five you get hogan winning it back from savage six is warrior winning seven's hogan winning it back from slaughter eight is warrior returning to assist hogan nine is hogan beating yoko and ten is brett winning and being lifted you know up above everybody so i guess if you have luger win the title at SummerSlam 93 like what triumphant moment is it that you build towards from there you know i i felt no um (laughs) But I did think he could have kept feuding for longer at the top. Yeah, I, I guess if you would have had him win the title, then 
the Ludwig Borger feud was on the cards. So mm. I guess he would have gone into that over the autumn, winter kind of time. And I guess if you wanted, you could have had him drop the title to Yokozuna and have him win it back at Mania. But yeah, I, I don't know that he should have, and I'm kind of glad he didn't. Yeah. No, I don't think he should have because he didn't show the greatest of work rate to produce like stellar performances as a champion. And also, in fact, the bigger problem is the problem that you pointed out. It was a forced elevation as to this American hero. You can't bring someone in as this completely unlikable narcissist character and then just quickly flip them with no reasoning whatsoever. No one was buying it. Like No one wanted to see this guy as a new Hulk Hogan, which is what Vince wanted it to be. Yeah, And so you're never going to have any validity. So there is no point in putting the title on him unless they used him in a different way. And the narcissist was a good character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a much better character, and I'd have, I'd have preferred to see him stay in that mould. Yes. Yeah, I almost think he potentially could have been more successful, certainly over latter half of 93, and then much more so in 94, had he remained heel. Mm. Because I think if you'd have built a Brett Beaton Yokozuna at WrestleMania 10, then, yeah, like outside of Owen... A heel Luger would have been a very natural opponent for Brett. And if I would have trusted anybody to kind of drag uh, an above average match out of Luger at that time, it would be Brett. Mm. Yeah. Number 19, Christian Roy. What was the best doink prank? I can't think of any. Cloning himself? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the only thing that I can re- at all even think about. Less of a prank and more a miracle of science. I've got getting out of wrestling at Survivor Series 1993 by sending out men on a mission in the Bushwhackers. <laughs> Great prank. Tim! Gotta have beef, gotta have spice, need a little excitement. Snap into a Slim Jim. Oh, yeah! Number 20, Robert Barlow. Adam, how would you rank the women of the new generation? Adam, how would you rank the women of the new generation? I'd rank them as mostly sexy. No, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how you're ranking them. I think I think people expect me to rank them on looks, so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and and <laughs> you bow down to peer pressure there, Adam. And in that, I'm going to do it in this descending order: Sunny, Marlena, Sable, Luna, China. Hang on, so do it slower so I can actually understand. So, so Sonny's t- you're doing top to bottom, yeah, not yeah, a so count. You're doing a count up rather than a count down. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're starting at the top. So Sonny's your favourite, and then... Marlena, Sable, Luna, China. The bottom two were a tricky one, uh, in, in all fairness. <laughs> but I actually think that Luna, if you take some of that shit off her face, uh, she's got quite a nice ass. <laughs> I'm trying to think, is, is there anybody that you've missed out there? So I'm thinking Alunda... Blaze, Bertha Fay. I just discounted like the women's wrestling. It didn't really seem to be uh, relevant in the same way that the rest of them were. Question number twenty-one, Andrew Titchmarsh. Which wrestler does history look back on favourably, but really shouldn't? Got to think Hulk Hogan. I've got Jerry the King Lawler for <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> um, I didn't really have one. Because, I felt because this era isn't necessarily too fondly remembered, apart from the big names. Number 22, David Johnson. Armchair booking. Imagine if the WrestleMania 9 main event had been Bret Hart versus Macho Man Randy Savage. How would such a booking change have impacted the main timeline of the new generation era? My answer for this just says Stuart. 
My answer says Stuart, because I don't really know the implications. I think the only way that particular match could have had any kind of ongoing impact is if you'd have done a savage heel turn and really pushed it as a long-term feud. So it may potentially, if you'd have done it babyface versus babyface, given Brett that kind of endorsement from somebody who'd been a big player in the previous era. But I don't know kind of yet if just having that match for the sake of having that match would have had any real long-term impact. Mm. Hmm. Number 23, Chris Hales. Even though Sean didn't draw as champion, do you guys think that the consistently high quality of matches he put on was good for the company overall? Do you think that he slowly drew people away from WCW and their lacklustre main events? No, but I don't blame him for that. I think he did well in terms of the match quality and I feel it's a bit of a team sport situation you can have one outstanding member on your team but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win true I think ratings proved that he didn't and that as good as his matches were I don't think they influenced the generation of main eventers i.e. Austin, Triple H and Rock that followed him I don't think the main events you see in the Attitude Era are necessarily patterned after the kind of matches that Sean had did he influence today's guys? Absolutely. But I think that might be more attributable to his post-comeback run. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, you, you guys like your Seth Rollins and your Adam Coles and stuff like that, they obviously all speak very highly of, and being big fans of Shawn Michaels. But, yeah, I don't know as if the Attitude Era was. And in the end, I don't know that it was him that drew people back from WCW. No, I mean, do you think that... You're talking almost about the blueprint and style of the main events. Was that partially coincidental to Austin's injury and him being a primary figure, though? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the style of main events that you would go on to see in the Attitude Era are worked around, yeah, the fact that Austin can't go out and have the matches he could have had two years previously. So, yeah, the bells and whistles are all there. And even when Austin stops being involved in those main events, kind of the late, end of 99 when he's injured mm. for, for an extended period of time that's already the blueprint for what a successful main event is so you get the you know legions of special guest referees guest timekeepers mm. guest announcers you get the massive amount of run-ins the regular stipulations all the kind of yeah bells and whistles dog and pony smoke and mirrors that kind of you <laughs> come to expect from from those kind of main events and yeah, those were not the main events Sean was having. Sean was capable of going out and just having great quality wrestling matches. Yes, there was storyline stuff there, but he didn't rely on as much of that stuff as the Attitude Era did. Yeah, And yeah, ultimately, I'll always go back to kind of going against this revisionist history that says, yes, it was DX and it was The Rock and it was this and this and this that forced people to change the channel back from... WCW to it's Steve Austin. People tune in to see Steve Austin. When they get there, they find that they like DX and they find that they like mm. The Undertaker and Kane and they find that they like The Rock. But I'm positive it's Austin that draws people back, not Sean. Yeah, mm. and I'll, I'll go along with that. He does maintain this high uh, main event quality. His matches are great. But is anyone trading in like the NWO for Shawn Michaels? Probably not. I think if I remember correctly as well, like his run as champion performed well at house shows. So 
and, and I don't know if that's just a hangover from 95 where the shows were so bad when you knew you were going to go and see a Shawn Michaels match at a house show, mm. you know, people did buy tickets to go and see that, but mm. were they changing the channel to watch him? No, they weren't. No. Question number 24, Tom Keeley. Based on what you've seen, do you think Vince is a genius or crazy? I think oh. he's a crazy genius. Oh, I think he's a crazy genius. That's what I'd written. Mm. Equal mix of both. 25, Steve Metcalf. How different do you think the end of the new generation and the beginning of the Attitude Era would have been had Shawn Michaels not been injured? Do you think he would have contributed or detracted from the product? Uh, generally, I think it have, it have contributed providing his jealousy towards Austin would not become too overriding. I think it would have complicated matters. Yes. Slightly. I think Austin would still get there because I think that's the direction that he's on. That is why people are sort of like, they're on board with him. But Sean's placement within the company and where he wants to be would probably make that road less straightforward. As soon as he goes, really, the, the, the doors open and Austin can just like jump straight up to the top. I can't help but feel that if Sean didn't go, then he'd put some sort of blocks in the way. And although Austin would eventually get there, it wouldn't be quite as smooth. Well, it would have delayed Vince's participation, wouldn't it? Do you think? I think so. I, I can't see Sean just stepping aside so quickly. You know, just ha- just letting Austin win at Mania and then not having rematches or anything coming of it. So even if it only pushed it back by a few months, I think it would have delayed and, and shaped that. Yeah, I think it very much depends on what kind of place he's in mentally and how threatened he feels in his role. I would really love to see a parallel universe where he isn't injured at WrestleMania 14 because I am fascinated by the possibility of seeing how he would have responded to Steve Austin being pushed as the WWS top guy instead of him. Mm. So could he exist in a promotion at that time in the state of mind he was in and not be the the icon, the showstopper, the main event? of somebody else i feel like he probably would have detracted in the short term and would have potentially ended up walking out anyway if he was moved down the card so yeah it's more than likely he would have gone on to have matches with austin rematches with austin etc etc but once that was done and they were ready to move austin over to face somebody else like can i see the Shawn michaels of late 97 be willing to just go work like the fourth match on or the semi-main event or something. No, I can't. Like, Mm. so would he have just got fed up and buggered off? Probably. Number 26, Andy Bainbridge. Please, can you do a six-hour biopic of The Gang Wars? No. No, no, I don't think we can. What do you think you've been listening to for the last five years? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, has everybody completely missed the point? Yeah, it was our main drive. Mm. Yeah. We we just got that, that initial picture in the logo wrong <laughs> yeah that's not brett and sean that's <laughs> that's crush and savio <laughs> question number 27 aaron funnel the sean versus brett real life rivalry was it a positive or negative thing overall for wrestling so i guess it's a positive from the perspective that it created possibly the most notorious moment in wrestling history but it was a negative from the point of view of wondering what kind of long-term feud could those two have had if they were willing and able to cooperate? 
So imagine a world in, yeah, 96, 97, where those pair are the best of friends and they're able to kind of sit down and with Vince between them, plan out like a feud that lasts a couple of years. And yeah, I'll get my gang of the Heart Foundation and you'll get your gang of DX and we'll do this, this, this and this. And Mm. yeah, like if you think what that could have been, yeah, it probably would have ended up being way better than what we got. And, you know, you have that very awkward period in mid-97 after they have one of their many fallings out where they're both on TV at the same time and they're not interacting. And it's only in that month before Survivor Series that you get them back on television kind of just sniping at each other. Mm. And was it entertaining? Yes, it was. But not for the reasons I think it was meant to be entertaining. Yeah. I mean, I I felt it was positive. And and like you say, it's the fact that I guess that we're still talking about it. But a few things that came from it, you know, there's there's a few questions that we're addressing about when does the attitude era start or when when do the seeds first get sown in and and those sorts of things and this is very much one of them in terms of the screw job i think that epitomizes the unpredictability yeah that you go on to see in the attitude era and also because of that we we you know would we get the mcmahon character in the same way that we do without this rivalry yeah, possibly not, and and that would would have a big effect. So, you you know, sad as it is in many ways, I think it is a you, you know very much in the long term. I, I see it perhaps as a positive thing, but you know, parallel universe world, we don't know. I'll kind of lean a bit more with what Stuart said in terms of I think that the rivalry that could have built up over a longer protracted period would have been absolutely fantastic. But I also very much take what you're saying and that it did create you know, a massive bit of scandal within the industry. It created a character in Mr. McMahon, or it simply, in, or, or certainly enhanced what his character was going to become. Mm. So it's a very hard thing to judge on whether it would have been better or whether we actually got the better run of things. Mm. Number 28, John Campbell. Who from the WWE today would have fit in well in the new generation era? Adam Cole, baby. Is that just because you like saying that? I love saying that. Boom. i'd also like to see adam cole versus Shawn michaels you know both both in their peak i think that would be something quite awesome i put roman reigns would have probably fit in because they would have just pushed him as like the new hogan character and it might have worked better (laughs) also braun Strowman because i think you could throw him into any era and it'd be all right and weirdly gold dust really well yeah because he was there oh yeah Yeah, so I've got three names actually down, and they're of a similar type. I know he's not around so much anymore, but if Vince had gotten Big Show in 1995 instead of WCW, he would have absolutely pushed him to the moon that year. Yeah. Same with someone like Lars Sullivan or Braun Strowman. They would have absolutely stolen the urn sometime in 1995 (laughs) if they'd have been around. I'd have also liked to have seen Ricochet versus The Kid in, like, 94. Number 29, Mark Wright. Who was the best male tag team from the USA? It would have to be the American males. I've got the Godwins. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Bodies, were they American? Yes. Yeah, Heavenly Bodies, anyway. Steiner Brothers. I, too, tip my hat to Scott Cavaliero, the American males. There's no hope. With dope.
Question number 30. Richard Quarry. Best use of a fire extinguisher during the new generation era? Street Fighter, WrestleMania 13. It goes fucking everywhere. <laughs> Is that where they have the powder extinguisher? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, then it's definitely that one. Oh, it's the stupidest use. A nightmare to clean up. Vader against Kane. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He does try to fire extinguisher him in the face, doesn't he? If there's one character, actually, that you'd want to use a fire extinguisher on, it's the man that seemingly has well, certainly a fetish for fire. True. Number 31, Daryl Richard Lawrence. If they were to make a special edition of WWE 2K into a new generation video game, what features would it absolutely need to have? That's a good question. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. I I want to hear what you guys have got before I say my answer. Okay. Hogpen match. Yes. Crybaby match. Vince on commentary, where the only three lines of dialogue are, what a (laughs) manoeuvre, incredible (laughs) manoeuvre. One, two, he got him. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. (laughs) He's huge! They sit him in the proboscis. <laughs> and the Nacho Man and the Hookster as bonus pre-order characters. <laughs> That's quite good. I thought that you'd have to have a beat-the-click storyline. <laughs> Spoil it, you can't. <laughs> you have been fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've done well. You're out the door. <laughs> uh, an interesting mini-game called... Duke's day on the bins, where you have to go bin collecting, as Duke Joe say. Quang. <laughs> just, just quang. And also, I'd really like to have some... I've really focused on minigames in this. Some sort of like strange Slammy Award minigame where you've got Todd singing, and it's a bit like Parappa the Rapper, where you've got to press the buttons in the right order to make him say the right things. Do you, have you seen on any of the, the newer games, they have like that promo mode where you have to like choose your response? Well, they, like, had, they had that in Here Comes the Pain, didn't they? Oh, true, yeah. So you could do that, but with Armour Johnson, and all the responses are just like unintelligible, unintelligible, unintelligible. <laughs> and you just press a button and he just garbles And he something. says it with intensity. <laughs> and you believe it. Everyone cheers. Five-star promo. <laughs> I, I also thought the, the King of the Ring sets complete with thrown that thing. Scepter. Scepter, <laughs> crown, and a slot bucket. <laughs> that, those are the only things you want in the game? Well, no, I want other things, but you've, you've mentioned most of them. But Hogpen Match was my number one. <laughs> I actually think that would make a really good audience challenge, so we might recycle that one. It's a really good question, that. Number 32, Bobby Sketch. 1993 to 1998, what was wrestling thinking? It wasn't. So I've got, it was thinking, we really need to try something different. It just didn't work out what that was until late 1997. I, I felt that it was thinking, how do we use this photocopy machine? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how do we get our fan base back up to our Hulkamania peak? Number 33, Andrew Scalise. There's a lot of cause and effect that leads to the Attitude Era and WWF winning the war i.e. the curtain call, Austin winning King of the Ring, the double turn at 13, HBK losing his smile, etc. What would have happened if each of those didn't happen as they did? I'm just handing this one over to you, Stuart. Well, I've got a couple of notes before, like, Stuart's clearly more thought out and reasonable notes. I've got that I think Austin would still rise up without the King of the Ring win. Correct. It was a massive part, but I don't think it was so instrumental in what that guy was doing that if it didn't happen, he was never going to get anywhere. I think the double turn, if that never happened, it would make his ascension a lot longer. Because yeah. I think that was like a, such a key moment in T 
tipping that character in the right direction. HBK losing his smile, well, the same thing would still bloody happen. Yeah. He just wouldn't have a couple of months off. Yeah. I'm not sure about the curtain call. So I think long-term, the only impact of not having the curtain call would have been Triple H winning the King of the Ring rather than Austin. But I think Austin would have taken off once the feud with Brett began anyway. Because, you know, if you remember, like, Austin wins the King of the Ring and then really does nothing. Yeah. So, you know, he's on the SummerSlam pre-show against Yokozuna. Like, it it almost feels like with Austin's win, they literally just crossed out Helmsley's name and put Austin and everything else is as it kind of would have been. Yeah. Maybe Triple H doesn't get the IC title until November like he does anyway. So I don't think that has as much of a long-term impact if it doesn't happen anyway. HBK losing his smile, I think, yeah, Adam, is pretty incidental overall. It's just a funny thing to take the piss out of. But I think the double turn is the one that really changes things if it doesn't happen. That said, I think eventually Vince would have to start booking Austin as a babyface because of the crowd reactions. But then again, you know, Roman Reigns. Number 34, Oliver Starton. I know you're all fans of Chikara's King of Trios, so if you had to make a fantasy new generation team... Who would you like Techno Team 2000 to bring to the year 2018 to mix it up at King of Trios? And how about a retro WCW team? I quite like this question. Mm. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking about it and just arrived to my initial thought. Well done. Which was Sid, Razor Ramon, Adam Bomb. I'd watch that as a trios team. Is that team very tall? Team massive. Well, I I made four teams because I couldn't decide. Okay. Um, so imagine this is your semi-final <laughs> mix-up. So I've got Shawn Michaels, The Kid and Razor Ramon, Bret Hart, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog, Austin, The Rock and Triple H, and then any three of the four horsemen, not Jeff Jarrett, <laughs> uh, from, <laughs> from WCW. Did, did you pick a WCW team, Adam? I didn't Adam? do a WCW one, no. So, I mean, obviously my WWF fantasy trio would be Bret, Bulldog and Owen. But, yes, a click trio of Sean, Razor and Diesel would also be great. I've gone for Team Million Dollar Corporation of Sid, The Kid and Bam Bam Bigelow. Oh. Yeah. So you say Million Dollar Corporation, you think terrible, but then you hear yeah, the, uh, yeah. people. I, I did think terrible. And, yeah, Arn, Mongo and Flair as a horseman trio would be quite cool from WCW. Or Team Dungeon of Doom <laughs> with Kamala, Zodiac and Shark. No Meng. I did try. He, and think... he, he'd just be on his own in the tournament. <laughs> Probably win. I did spend a while trying to do one as a theme, but struggled. What was your theme? No, no, no just like to have like a theme. So maybe like a theme of animals, or say I don't know, Ultimo Dragon with some other animals like Battle Cat or the British, British Bulldog. Bulldog. Yeah, but some... you didn't manage it. No, I've, well, we just have now. But... <laughs> <laughs> Number thirty-five, Andrew Werner. How great was Ken Raper? What about his ten tapers? It's a good rhyme, and that's the best thing about it. I, I really feel like his name held him back. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I think when we all watched that, and his name flashes up on the screen, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, who put that on television? Especially, especially in an era of wrestler, where the wrestlers are named after their professions. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was either his name holding him back or the multitude of pets he had to care for. Well, tapers are massive. <laughs> exactly. You ten of them, you'd certainly need a shed. Or at least a very big wrestling ring. <laughs> they might get out. 36, Michael Staley. 
pleasant surprises from the Hogpen match to Jean-Pierre Lafitte. You guys found a few surprisingly good things within the crap. What was the most pleasant surprise? I've got an easy answer for this one. Sid's run in 1996. I'll I'll defend June to November 96 Sid until the day I die. <laughs> Good answer. I'll put the Hogpen match, because we did all quite enjoy it. I think maybe me and Scroops more than you. And Furness and Lafon, because I didn't know anything about them, and that was a really good surprise, because they were dead good. Yeah, I certainly think Sid's run was a really good call, because that was just amazing how over he was, really. Jim O'Dell Ray for me, Hogpen match, Furness and Lafon, short rules... Is a, is a nice thing. Jim Cornette and Sonny. Well, she was a pleasant surprise for you, was she? Well, she was, because from my point of view, I, I had no... Ex- like, I'd never seen her, ever seen her before we did this. But I'd heard things about her that was perhaps more relevant to her, you know, current goings-on. Number 37, James Aaron Fretz. If you could read book King of the Ring 95, who would win it? I'd put anyone. Anyone but Mabel. I've put Sean. I've literally no idea why he didn't win that tournament. <laughs> I get that you want to build Mabel for Diesel, but I don't know, just just make Sean say something like, oh, I've won the tournament, but I'm going after the Intercontinental title because that's my belt or something. And you can do the whole Mabel Diesel thing anyway. But yeah, I, it's just after he's had his comeback from the injury angle with Sid and, mm. you know, he's had the great match with Jarrah and yeah, like... Why didn't he win that tournament? Because <laughs> he wasn't huge. He wasn't huge, no. Number 38, Ricky Michael Hill. Who were your top three wrestlers from the era you believe could have gone on to be top stars had things fallen their way a little more? Pillman, if he had time, possibly. I've got Pillman as well. If he didn't have like the leg smash-up, then yep. he would have actually been able to compete and... People would have seen how amazing he was, and that mixed in with his new character direction would have like shot him right up. I think Bulldog, I always think perhaps should have been champ at some point. He definitely, he was good enough. He had enough popularity. It would have just been nice, and I think maybe like Hakushi. And I know that it wasn't like he he wasn't stiffed in any way in terms of being bullied out was he but he was just there in a small capacity but had he been in there and perhaps had a uh, an even better reception felt comfortable in the company he could put on matches that would definitely see him go up the card yeah I, I think I said this before but I always wonder with him what if he'd have signed for WCW in mid 96 mm. and been part of that influx with Ray Psychosis Hooventude Super Kalo those guys like I could see him being kind of a focal point of that division and being a multiple-time Cruiserweight champion. Would he have been a main eventer in WCW? Absolutely not. No. But would he have had a longer and more well-received run had he been part of that crew? I, I think absolutely. Well, could he have made his way there and then as soon as people started jumping ship, he'd have enough sort of like popularity and focus to go to the WWF and actually be a decent star there? I, I still don't think so, mm. if I'm honest. But, yeah, he, he could be more well-remembered by American wrestling fans if he'd have been part of that group than the group he was in, mm. I think. But my three are Bam Bam Bigelow, yeah. Adam Bomb, and Razor Ramon. Because mm. Razor wanted to be a main eventer and thought he was worthy of it. It's just mm. Vince didn't. Well, the crowds thought he was worthy of it. Everyone thought he was worthy of it, I think. Yeah, But, and- but if you don't have that one guy on your side who makes all the decisions, then you can't do it. 
Did he ever get that slot in WCW at all, do you? No, but that is more due to his personal problems by the time he gets there and by the time he's a big enough star there. And for me, the other two, Bigelow and Adam Bomb, are just two big guys who actually felt like they could have done more. Yes. Number 39, Matthew Robinson. What was the best WrestleMaths? I've got 10 punches in the corner because crowds always loved counting along with that. Well, I I kind of took it in a different sense, so I I thought it was kind of like the best like little... WrestleMath segment, which I think is a moons, moons because it's it, it was organic, you know. It's, <laughs> whereas everything else from that, you know, it's like a, a, a lesser sequel. Well, it's almost like an obligation, isn't it? I, I feel like you know people expect it of me now. So you're the maths guy. I'm the maths guy. Tired of those silly birthday games? Don't know what to get that special someone? Gee, a static clock. Hey, WWF fans, you can make any occasion a special occasion when World Wrestling Federation superstars make a personal phone call to anyone you want by name. WWF greetings on call. Hey, who wouldn't want to get a call from the bad guy? It's fun for all ages when a WWF superstar sings happy birthday. Congratulations, get well, happy anniversary, or just delivers a special friendship call. And like I said before... I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the... Hello? Hey, Owen. This is Fred ah. calling. Call 1-900-454-4545 to order WWF Greetings on Call. Kids, you must be at least 18 years old or have your parents' permission before calling. Number 40, Andrew Titchmarsh. Which wrestler in the timeline should have been champion at some point? Vader. Vader. Or Bulldog. Razor. Number 41, Matt Lewinsky. What do you think would have happened if it was Shawn Michaels and Diesel that went to WCW and Razor Ramon had stayed as a main eventer? I don't think it would have helped the WWF. I think Razor would have done okay, but I also don't think it would have helped WCW. I think HBK couldn't have worked with Hogan. Yeah, that's essentially my take on it. I think the NWO would have imploded a lot quicker as there's no fucking way Sean would have stood for Hogan leeching off his popularity because I think it's, you know, we we came to the conclusion very quickly that it was Hall and Nash was what was cool about the NWO and what people were into. It's just Hogan was able to kind of hitch his wagon to that Mm. and I cannot see 96, 97 Shawn Michaels going for that. And certainly with his ambitions to be a top singles guy, you know, like why would he want to kind of play subservient to Hogan and be in a tag team with Nash at that point? My impression is that Hall and Nash were a tad more easygoing about being attached to Hogan. Like they were happier to kind of, okay, he's leeching a bit off of us, but we can kind of leech a bit of Mm. kind of star power off of him almost. But yeah, sure, most certainly would have not been. As far as Razor as a main eventer goes, I'm guessing he could have filled in with the feuds with Bulldog, Vader and Mankind. The matches wouldn't have been as good as Sean's were, but I think he probably could have risen to the challenge character-wise and, you know, given the impression of what he felt about his own potential, I certainly think he would have seized the opportunity. Yeah, I think Razor would have done all right had had he stayed in the others of the jump ship. And I think we pointed this out before that possibly the WWF as a company with Vince in control of it and as controlling as he is would have kept Scott Hall's personal problems perhaps on a better line than where he went off to WCW and had loads of freedom. Yeah. So that might have actually been better for him. Sean would have failed in WCW for the reasons that you pointed out. He's not going to play second fiddle to Hogan and Hogan would quickly realise that 
and destroy him out of it because Hogan's got all the power. Sean doesn't really have any when he goes there. But Nash is still going to be a big bell end, so he's going to be fine wherever he goes. Question number 42. Brendan Roche. What if the WWF had run King of the Ring 1995 in a different city? Particularly one without a strong local promotion like ECW in Philadelphia. Do you think that it would be remembered as being as bad as it was, or would it have fallen in with other bad pay-per-views on offer at the time? I think evidence shows that Mabel would have never gotten over unless you ran it at his family reunion. (laughs) But did the visceral reaction of the crowd with the EC dub chants put out to the folks watching at home more quickly how shite the whole thing really was? I put that that show would still be shit no matter where it was. Yeah, I, I still think it would be remembered as one of the worst pay-per-views of all time. The ECW chants, I think, are actually a relatively minor part of the show as they only crop up towards the end. Yes, they're prevalent in that main event, but the rest of the show kind of occurs without it. And if you don't know what ECW is or aren't so inclined to go off and look what it is once you've heard the chants, then, yeah, like it, it's relatively incidental to you. I think you would still know watching that show that this is fucking rubbish. Yes. I, I agree, but I think the, the the one positive to come out of it is I think they go to a bit of effort to make a good show the next time they're there. So was it In Your House 5? No, the, it's Mind Games is the next show. There. It's my, yeah. But, so yeah, so they go and have a really good show next time. I think they'll go and actually put that extra effort in. Number 43, Nick DeGarris, most underrated faction. Camp Cornet. I'm not particularly a big fan of any of the factions. I don't, I, yeah. Well, that was the Bariquas and the DOA. That's not entirely serious. This was my issue in thinking about factions, because I thought, well, well there's the Million Dollar Corporation, oh, they were bloody awful. And then you got the the DOA, they were terrible, and the Bariquas, they were generally bad. And you've got the Nation, but like, they're rated fairly highly. They're the yeah. Rock and Farouk in it. So it's a very hard thing to do. But Camp Cornet isn't looked back in history as being like alongside those great factions, because it's always... Yeah, they'll talk about DX and they'll talk about the nation, but they won't generally talk about Cam Cornet, which generally had some good people in it. I've got the last iteration of the Nation of Domination that we saw. Farouk, Rock, D'Lo, Brown, Karma and Mark Henry. I don't actually think the nation are looked back on with too much fondness in the same way that like every WWE documentary ever bangs on about the NWO and DX. But mm. it, it is, it's still featured. They're, I don't see in any things that they do, like Cam Cornet featured. No, I, I I don't, but then I don't really see The Nation featured either. I just think because The Rock was part of it, you will get clips from that, so, so it does have some kind of feature. That's why this was a really hard question. Number 44, Chris McGuinness. What do you consider the best and worst entrance themes from the new generation era? Best is Brett's, worst is Bastion Boogers. It's terrible. I had a bit of a, a rundown, so... At five, I had Austin's. Four, I had Ken, Chris McKen. Three, Shawn Michaels. Two, Owen's old music. And at number one, Undertaker. I think that just sets his character really nicely. And, and for one that I don't like is Owen's newer music. Yeah, that is Which bad. is really irritating. I'll put some of my favourites being Razors, because I really, really like that. I like Vader's music, and I'm a big fan of Mark Mero's music, actually. That's really good. Mm. As far as worst ones, I was never a big fan of the Savio Vega theme. The Chiquitos theme? I think, because I heard it too many times in that King of the Ring. And Diesel's, because it's just noise. Yeah, you never liked Diesel's theme, did you? No. Question number 45. Peter Sanzone. 
What was your least favourite storyline and what do you think could have been done to improve it? I've got Diesel versus the Million Dollar Corporation. It was dire and the only thing that could have been done to improve it was to never start it. I put Mabel being king and fixes don't have him win it. I've got the gang wars just dull in the air. I think the answer to anything like this is don't book it in the first place. (laughs) 46, Chris Walsh. The Raw after WrestleMania, you just covered his way. You have decided the Attitude Era is in full swing. But can you pick a moment in your timeline that was its genesis? So this is quite similar to question 10. Yeah. I guess there's a slight different emphasis in probably King of the Ring 96 with Austin's speech, I think is when we first started talking about the real seeds of the Attitude Era. I wasn't really sure on this, Andy, because it duplicates from a different question in a, in a very similar way. But from what you said before, I'm guessing the Brett Austin feud is kind of a, was it WrestleMania 13? Yeah. Was the, the point where you quite rightly say you can definitely see things going in that direction? Yeah, that's my answer as well. Number 47, Jose Angel Garcia. Who were your top five favourite jobbers? I've really not seen enough of this. Sure, it's probably the person. But I'm going to just get in there with Barry Horowitz. Yeah, so I've got Scott Taylor, Barry Horowitz, T.L. Hopper, Freddie Joe Floyd and Damien Demento. <laughs> did we ever see him? I did. Okay. I got Barry Horowitz, Ken Raper, Freddie Joe Floyd, Aldo Montoya and Scott Taylor. Good bunch of jobbers. They, they seem like a, a fine selection there, Adam. Number 48, Sam Stoke. Sandwiched between the golden era and the attitude era, the new generation is a dire period with a few gems amidst the manure. Can you justify what is so great about it and why it is fondly remembered by some? I've got, because you saw the move away from the physique-led era of the late 80s and early 90s into a time where, at least to an extent, athleticism and ability were valued more than they had been. I guess time has proven that that didn't draw money, but I'd take Brett and Sean over Hogan and Warrior any day of the week, but then that's what I grew up on. Yeah, I had a similar answer in terms of uh, it's really about the reduced size, perhaps making some of the characters a little bit more human rather than superhuman and therefore perhaps a bit relatable to the normal person. I thought, well, there's a few things. You saw great progression between 96 and 98 in sort of transforming the company into something different. You get really silly cartoon characters from 93 to 96 and some people really like that. Yeah. I think ourselves included we, we like seeing some of that sort of stuff it's a time where it's it's not a monster company like it was before or since so it is just sandwiched in this area where it's down but it's a time when genuinely interesting things are tried and if you look hard enough you can find some really good stuff in it number 49 dominic Schendelors. here's an idea that's been running through my head what if sean already injured his back during his match against taker at bad blood Let's say he landed awkwardly on the commentary table during his bump from the cage. At this point, Vince wanted to let Brett go and push forward with Sean as his top guy in the midterm. But since Sean is injured now, would Vince still let Brett go? I, I struggled with this one because I'm not entirely sure. Were we at a point where he would consider keeping Brett if his plans have been changed? So Vince thinks that Sean's going to be my guy, Brett's an issue and I've given him too big a contract and all this sort of stuff. Does he stop that line of thinking because he's been like put into a bit of a situation that he didn't expect? At this point, was Stone Cold formed into the plans of where he would eventually get to? So, yeah, my answer is absolutely not. I think it's 
100%. If immediately after Bad Blood, Sean is gone, then, yeah, he makes almost like a Hail Mary play to keep Brett. Because, yeah, I think by that point, he'd worked out Austin is the direction and they're just kind of riding the time out until he's fully back from his injury. Mm. And if you take Sean out at that point, who have you got that you can spend six months building towards Austin taking the title from? Yeah. And if you want to tell a story from kind of WrestleMania 13 to WrestleMania 14, then yeah, in fact, there probably wouldn't have been a better story than Austin capturing the title from Brett a year after he's passed out in a pool of his own blood. And I think as well, in terms of top stars, yeah, if Sean's gone and Brett's gone, all you've really got is Taker. And Taker's kind of embroiled in the feud with Kane, which is a top feud, but it's not the top title feud. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if Sean goes at that point, and that's a really interesting question, like Brett's the one he has to go for and he, he would kind of do a, a you know a, a last minute attempt to keep him in the company see see i said yes and just because the money factor he, he was struggling to afford him and if sean is out for kind of an indeterminate amount of time i think that's going to make the financial trade a difficult one that's what i'm saying if you've not got sean's contract to pay for and he's gone but that's the difference isn't it between knowing that he's kind of so injured that he's gone for good and yeah, you don't know if Sean's going to be back at, you know, sometime in the distant future, sometime in the near future, or just gone completely. And I think that makes the yeah the financial situation overridingly difficult and might mean that you just got to let Brett go. But then who do, you, who do you stick in your main events until you're ready for Austin to capture the title? Probably somebody who doesn't deserve it and and, <laughs> and won't be very good. But if you've got no financial choice, you might have to just put somebody lesser in there. doesn't mean it'll be a good product. It's all new, WWF King of the Ring from Game Boy and NES. No holds barred tournament action from Acclaim. Number 50, Mike Foster. What happens if after his neck injury at SummerSlam 97, Steve Austin is forced into immediate retirement? What happens next? How do the Monday Night Wars play out? Does WCW's dominance continue? I think maybe their dominance is extended, but still only temporary. I think you'd get a full babyface turn for The Rock a lot sooner than April 1999. A big part of the WWF success between 98 and 2000 is that they have two stars, the caliber of Austin and The Rock at once. So if Austin is isolated, Rock still becomes the next big thing. Admittedly, he wouldn't have Stone Cold to play off of, but I think he'd still get there on his own. Yeah, and I think that WCW, as we've seen it and where it's going, is not necessarily being beaten into submission by the WWF. It's committing suicide. So that's still going to continue. The problems that exist in that company are still going to happen, even if Austin's not actually there. And yeah, I I would say if you got rid of Austin and The Rock, then yeah, you'd probably still get the suicide, like you say, of WCW. But I don't know whether the WWF would have that rise in popularity. So you might just see both of them decline. Yeah. But I think, yeah, if you take out Austin and keep Rock, then, yeah, you've still got that downward turn for WCW, and ultimately you still get that upward curve for the WWF. Mm. Yeah, I kind of think WWF will be okay with The Rock and with Triple H, you know, coming more into prominence. Number 51, Chris Walsh. Well done. Thank you. Did the WWF have to go full attitude to win the war? Watching back through... Do you think the product in 97 was strong enough to turn the tide without old ladies giving birth to hands, etc.? Yeah, I I think where they're at in 1998 is about enough to get them to where they want to go. 
I don't feel like Kennels from Hell, Mae Young and Harvey Whippleman as women's champion were that necessary in hindsight. <laughs> Austin, Rock, Mankind and the Taker Kane feud were. Mm. Yeah, it links back to the last question, really, in the, to turn the tide, WCW were already kind of doing that themselves. So did you need to go into the really silly stuff or could you just kept it as it was in 97? You probably could have just kept it and it would have rode out. It might have extended WCW's life expectancy by a bit, maybe because some people would have tuned in to see all of the full-on attitude stuff. I, I'm not sure that 97 was strong enough further down the card. I think one of the things is you perhaps do get more characters in perhaps those lower positions that might not be contributing brilliant matches but might be interesting to to watch. And I don't think it needed to go all the way to 11 in the Attitude Era, which I, I think it undoubtedly did. Number 52, Jared Groves. Would you guys be up for reviewing shows from other places around the world during your era? I'm sure you guys might love some old All Japan and Joshi shows to review and get a good feeling of contrast from the WWF and its contemporaries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it'd, it'd be fine. I think you'd have the harder job perhaps getting some of the information to provide the context for those shows that you do with the network and the amount of material on WWF. Yeah, it's it's definitely a possibility. I'd be happy to watch tons of Joshi from this period, but honestly, I'm not sure the demand is out there for it. Like, so we could potentially have done more depth on WCW and covered some more of the early ECW stuff. But yeah, I, I don't know what the general demand would be to see us kind of review, like, yeah, old All Japan or old New Japan or old AJPW or old AAA or whatever. Like, I, I'd be interested in watching it, but I don't know whether there'd be, yeah, enough interest to sustain a series based on that. Is it too niche? Is yeah, it- I, I think so. Number 53, Dwayne Adams. What was wrestling thinking? Now, hear me out. It's clear that WWF was getting a right kicking during this era. Only the potential of losing to billionaire Ted shook Vin McMahon into changing up the product, slowly but surely. But say Turner was happy with a smaller production, or even that WCW had never been that big of a threat to the WWF. Would the new generation have progressed in the same way? Would Sean have been indulged as much? Would Brett leave the product remaining family-friendly? Would Vince drop the ball with so many stars? Vader instantly springs to mind. And would he have stuck with his huge muscle men style and pulled the trigger on everyone's favourite pantser just to Lex Luger? Where then for Brett and Sean? I think that Lex Luger had already failed by the time billionaire Ted entered the wrestling war. <laughs> like, so that's late nine or mid to late 95 when he makes the decision to launch Nitro, by which point, yeah, Luger is done. Like, mm. that whole experiment is done. So, would Vince have been pushed to change direction as far as attitude goes without that? I think it's fair to say that it. If he did, it would have taken him a lot more time to make that decision if Mm. he did at all. So, yeah, he only changes his product because another product comes along that pushes him and overtakes him. He'd already entered the era of Brett and Sean by the time Nitro is a factor. But I do think, yeah, had the product been more family friendly, then Brett would have been happier to stay. Is there a potential that if that competition didn't exist between... WWF and WCW, that there would be no impetus to change in a massive way and you might have just got a rather stagnated product that just sort of ticks along the same sort of like thing that it's always done. I mean, if they'd have been able to sustain TV deals and sustain live show attendance 
above a certain point, then yeah, you might have just seen years and years of 95 style product. Yeah. Which, yeah, doesn't really bear <laughs> thinking about, does it? So, yeah, you know, WCW's entry into that war is what forces Vince to change his tack with how he presents his product. And, you know, arguably, that's why he never does it today. Like, when he sets a course with something, they persist with it, no matter yeah. kind of fan reaction. I mean, the only thing that tends to force them into into action is when sponsors start kicking off about stuff. So I think, if you remember earlier in the year when they announced the fabulous Moolah Battle Royal mm. at WrestleMania, like a bunch of fans on Twitter just went, like tattletailing to Snickers going, oh, so uh, you're supporting this company that support this woman who did all these awful things and very quickly they changed the name. Yeah. So you can kind of force their hand in to change something on a very minor level, but because there's no competition on a larger level, yeah, he's not pushed to change anything about what he's doing. And really, is it always just financial? When money's involved, then actually they will change things. Yeah. When it's fan reaction, they don't really seem to care. And the only thing that really springs to mind is that the fan reaction with Daniel Bryan made them rushedly change what happened at WrestleMania 30. But was the main push behind that is that Vince finally saw, I can make a bunch of cash out of this. Not that I want to make everyone happy. Or would it make people so unhappy that you might lose money from the product? I I think with that one, it was a case of somebody was able to put in his ear that your WrestleMania 30 main event will be an absolute disaster if you just have it as Orton versus Batista. Mm. But then equally by that, I think we're at the point now, as you saw this year with WrestleMania 34, people are going to boo Brock and Roman out of the building. Oh, who gives a fuck? Just let them. Yeah. Because they're still going to purchase, they're still going to turn up, the cash is still there, the sponsors are still there, so who cares? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about them sustaining things like, I guess, like ticket sales and pay-per-view sales at a particular level. But with how they were dropping, was there not a danger that it was going to get close to a point where they would have to change it without the kind of flick switch that WCW was? Possibly, but I, I I think you saw, and if you watch from 92 onwards through to 95, you see they just adjust. So they can't afford to run the big arenas anymore, so they don't. They can't afford, you know, big sets anymore, so they don't have them. Like, they just mm. kind of make do as mm. they go. So, yeah, you get that era from kind of late 93 through all the way 95, where they're just filming Raw in, like, high school gyms, essentially. Like, they just... Adjust. Okay. Question number 54. Ben Dorber. Do you know the location of Shawn Michaels' smile? In the Bible, it would seem. I got uh, maybe behind the fridge, probably in Vince's wallet. I put behind the fridge slash on his face. (laughs) (laughs) 55. Chris Coleman. What do you think would have happened if Hogan et al. would have stayed and Brett and Shawn had gone to WCW? I think that's a tricky one with the steroid trial because I think that's what forces it. So if he stays, but the steroid trial is still a prevalent factor, that might force Vince's hand anyway. So I think it would have caused a downturn for both promotions. The WWF with Hogan on top wouldn't have made any headway in terms of recapturing the zeitgeist of Hulkamania. And WCW with Brett and Sean, well, they wouldn't have been the acquisitions in 94 that Hogan was 
So you'd have probably had a WWF product that people were still bored with because it was still doing the same Hogan thing. And you probably would have had a WCW product that never had the mainstream visibility to capture anybody's attention. Hmm. I think that there's a possibility that if it had all been used right, then WCW could have won out in a weird way. And that if they've got Brett and Sean, that's fine. But what actually happened is they picked up Hogan. But they didn't just pick up Hogan, they picked up everyone else. They've still got tons of cash. So they've got Brett and Sean, but then they just go buy anyone else that they want to. As long as they leave Hogan in the WWF, they're going to put all their eggs in his basket and he's probably going to sink it. Number 56, Barry Walsh. Who is your favourite one-and-done appearance over the course of the podcast? I thought this was a really difficult question to, to, to think back to somebody who's only appeared once, but I'm going with Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got, as a character, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, because mm. that match with Brett is just so great. Again, I really struggled to think of people that we only saw once, but I've, I'm actually uh, Giant Gonzalez, even though his one appearance was terrible. We saw him twice. <laughs> I didn't even remember the second appearance. I got, uh, I got... In fact, we count the rumble three times. I got Ken Raper. We saw him once. We, well, we didn't technically see him ever, but yeah. And Pamela Anderson. We saw her once. Was she not on two shows? Oh, yeah, the rumble and mania. Oh, fucking hell. I can't think of anyone that I saw once that, that I thought was good. Oh, dear. Waylon Mercy. Yes. Yeah, I'd forgotten about him. Yes, that was, I liked him. Question number 57, Gaspar Hernandez. During Bret Hart's first runs as champion, Bret was never put over as a face of the company champion, starting with Bret winning the championship at a house show win over Ric Flair, later getting booked under things like Piper versus Lawler and even Lex Luger's debut. If McMahon really didn't treat Hart like a main eventer, why would he want to spend so much on keeping him in 1996? Because by 1996, Vince was hemorrhaging stars in a way that he wasn't in either 92 or 94. So when he first makes Brett champion, you know, he loses him very shortly after, but he's got people like Warrior, he's got Savage, he's got Flair. So these are kind of proven stars that he doesn't need to promote Brett over. In 1994, okay, he doesn't have the stars, but he's trying to kind of go with stuff like Piper versus Lawley, Undertaker versus Undertaker. You know, he just doesn't see Brett in that way. His reluctance to make Brett that person was frustrating. But by 1996, when WCW are just picking up everybody left, right and centre, clearly Vince felt the hitman was not someone he could afford to lose at that point. Mm. Does he seem as a bit more malleable? Brett's a different person to uh, what he had with Hogan and what he's got with Sean. Is he's not as petulant or demanding? And so, actually, you can push him into different places on the card and still have him as champion whilst trying different things to try and make two progressions. So you've got your champ match and you've got this massive rivalry in a way that you probably couldn't do with one of the other champions because they would demand that they'd be in a higher point on the card. So, yeah, when Sean captures the title, how often do you see him defending his title below other people? He doesn't. You don't. Hmm. So, yeah, maybe it was a case of, Brett, while being obviously quite ambitious and wanting to be champion and clearly taking both himself and the title quite seriously, maybe just didn't kick up as much of a fuss about not being that face of the company type person as Sean would have if we'd have gone, right, Sean, you've just won the world title. Yeah, by the way, you're the semi-main event while Undertaker faces himself. Yeah, and so it allows you to have a champion while still 
trying in well in a misguided way to do other things as well. Mm. Well, for me, so why I felt he spent so much to keep him in 96, he just knew that he needed him. He knew he was a dependable worker. He knew that he was a credible worker in perhaps a time when they didn't have loads of people at that level. And he can wrestle against a very wide range of opponents in a range of different styles. Number 58, Doug Ward. Is 1997 the most important year in modern wrestling history? Possibly, because... It created the competition-winning roster? It's a hard one. Like, I think there's a few that you could perhaps create an argument for. You could perhaps create an argument for, for 98 being similar to 97, but up a notch. And even in its own way, 1995, as in it's so poor that that helps shift the balance away from WWF, perhaps. See, my answer is just yes. Watch a Raw from 1996 and then watch one from 1998 and the change is incredible. Mm. Like, you can watch something from... 2000 and it's going to have a different roster and it's going to probably be better than something you'd watch in 97 or 98 but it feels more like that whereas a 96 raw does not feel like a 98 raw and that's because of 97 number 59 jose angel garcia what were the worst finishers of the new generation Bastion Booger dropping his balls on people's face. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I kind of had Bastion Booger's... I think I put it as a dirty dick splash. (laughs) I said the heart punch. I've also got the heart punch, because what can this guy do? Not a lot. Have him punch the heart, okay. But you love Crush. I do love Crush, but it doesn't mean I love his finisher. Promises are often broken. Hey, kid. Macho man? Let's hit a few. One federation and its superstars still believe in making dreams come true. The World Wrestling Federation. Our season never ends. Do you guys ever go on strike? No, we never. Question number 60. Brendan Roche. Would Hogan have left WCW if the NWO had gotten over without his direct involvement? Would he have gone back to Vince to try to rerun the 80s, more family-friendly stuff, or would he have realised on his own that he needed to become a heel to become relevant? Another really interesting alternate universe, I think, would be the one where, say, someone like Sting turns heel at Bash at the Beach, and the NWI really becomes popular and become cool heels opposite Hogan. So, yeah, can you imagine a world where he stays babyface and the kind of the NWO rise to the level of prominence and dominance Mm. that they do, but with him not a part of it. I think, yeah, if another group of people had gained that level of power in WCW, I think he'd have gone running back to wherever would have taken him to try and recapture Hulkamania. If WCW go on to dominate in this alternate timeline where Sting, Hall and Nash are the really cool, really popular NWO, then, yeah, Vince clearly would have taken him back in 96, 97. Mm. Do you think he'd have stayed face? Do you think he'd ever ever turned heel? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one other possible outcome of that, isn't it? Is that eventually he realises, I need to be a part of this. But I don't know if, if he joins, you know, in mid-97 or something like that, if it wouldn't have been 
you know, wildly transparent what he was doing. Whereas when he yeah. joins them at the yeah. start, it's this shocking moment and, you know, I can't believe Hulk Hogan's a bad guy and siding with these guys. If he joins when it's already in full swing and you've already had your Vincents and your Bagwells and whatnot join, then, yeah, it might just be a bit more, okay, you're definitely trying to leech off of this. But what about if he if he goes back to WWF and tries to recreate his own NWO in the WWF? I don't know if there would have been anybody there that would have persuaded him to try and be a heel. You really think the Vince would have definitely taken him back? Yeah, especially if, if, like I say, this version of the NWO goes on to dominate. If you've got the chance to have your top star back, then why wouldn't you take him? Do you think you go back at the level of cash that Vince would be able to afford to pay him at the time? No, but I think if they're both backed into a corner, there's then no other option. There's no other there? option, yeah. Wow, how bad would the WWF have been if Hogan had gone back and tried to basically redo Hulkamania? The thing you need to remember as well is, like, Vince made another play for the Warrior in, like, December 97, and he was willing to fork out large amounts of cash Mm. then to get that guy back. So why wouldn't he use that cash for Hogan? Good Mm. point. Number 61, Dominic Schendelors. What if Vince, perhaps liking to see the Hart brothers wrestle the Steiner brothers, decided to keep Bret and Owen as a tag team for a much longer period of time? This is another one that I'm passing to you. I don't know what would happen. I just, I just put, yes, please. Yeah, I hope we would have seen some Brett Owen, Sean Diesel matches for the WWF tag team titles. Like, those would have been great. So, yeah, I guess if you do get a world where Lex is pushed to the top, then if you're doing Lex and Yoko on top, then Brett Owen versus Sean Diesel would be a really good use of those guys. Hmm. If Brett was in the tag division for a sustained period of time, would it change what would be happening massively at the top of the company in terms of the title? Because Brett's then occupied in something else? Well, yeah. You you would just get, like I say, I, I guess the most logical thing to carry on doing would be Lex Yoko. Question 62. Chris Walsh. What lessons could the current product today take from the new generation era? Shorter roles. Shorter shows are easier to watch. Do you think... Because um, I saw that video... I didn't watch the video, but I saw, just saw the headline about... Steph, with that statement about listening to your audience. Yeah. Do you think that anything has changed in terms of listening to the audience? Or do you think that WWF were better at listening to the audience in the older days? Yeah, I think they're at a level now where they are such a big company with so many high-value TV deals, the very valuable over-the-top network, the great deals with sponsors that, yeah, they don't really have to listen to their audience. They can kind of come out and have Steph say, yeah, we do that because it sounds good. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that they have to. And I think they cottoned on that they don't have to Mm. because they will make money kind of despite themselves. Do you think they listen to the audience back in the new generation era or any other era better? I think yes, purely because, like I say, the new generation is very much an era of trying different things. And, okay, some stuff they do persist with. Diesel as champion they do persist with, but eventually when it transpires that doesn't work, they try something different. When it becomes wildly apparent throughout late 96, early 97 that Steve Austin is the guy that the fans are into, they turn in babyface at a point where the fans are still into him. Mm. That, That was kind of the example that I was thinking of with that, yeah. Question number 63, C.R. Galaza. What was the biggest surprise you guys ran into when covering this timeline? Sid's popularity in 1996 
or, and this is something I knew about, how little Austin is used after King of the Ring 1996. As far as a surprise, I knew that WCW was making a load of money and they beat the WWF on a number of, like, how many weeks was it? 83, 84. 83, so ridiculous. They're making loads. I didn't realise they were doing it whilst producing some very ropey material at the same time. (laughs) Mm. You thought they were just producing this amazing show. I thought they're doing much better because their product's excellent. Turns out that is kind of true, but it's also not true at all. I feel like I'm kind of surprised with how long it's been since the New Generation era in terms of how times have changed and in particular how jarring some of the audience attitudes and and chants and signs, you know, how just jarring it seems from what's acceptable now to what was kind of just happening back then. Is that just because you feel like you've forgotten kind of what was acceptable then? Maybe it's, it's just kind of that awareness, but I just think, you know, hopefully society's come some some way since since then in terms of its attitudes. Number 64, Greg Jones. What is your favourite Magnificent Mabel moment? There are none. I don't think he did anything positive. I'm trying to remember. He did a rap, right, for WrestleMania 10. Oh, you liked the yes, rap. Yes, he did. You <laughs> it did was like, terrible, but probably, you liked it. Probably that, his attire. And not that I thought I think it was a good moment, but just something that sticks in my mind is, is him sitting on Diesel. Yeah, that definitely sticks in Kevin Nash's mind. Yeah, not as a good moment. My answer is when he left. <laughs> I guess there is, if we're talking about things that you just remember quite well, the first time he gets on that fucking throne that Ooh. those poor people have to carry, and you see them all like wince. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that picture. It was like, yesterday. It was around somewhere that. Yeah, someone tweeted it yesterday, didn't they? Number sixty-five, <laughs> Robert Hunter. If you had to change one thing about the timeline, what would you change? I think possibly adding a women's division. It seems, and perhaps more so because of the the prevalence and spotlight that's being shined on women's wrestling at the minute, it seems so absent from the wrestling diet. There's a few things I can't think of. If you think of one thing, it's got to be really important. I don't think think of anything particularly important. Obviously, no Mabel winning the King of the Ring, that'd be quite important. Rockabilly. As in, you would have more or less, or none? Less. The whole Honky Top Man search for his protege was just... That was a terrible story. Awful, awful. And and possibly someone like Bulldog at Owen to win the title. That'd be a nice change. See, I've got that I would have liked to have seen In Your House shows in 93, 94, purely because I'm interested in what cards they would have put together for those guys. <laughs> no, yeah. but like... Yeah, I think we liked the In Your House shows, even though they started in 95, because you got kind of, you didn't see everybody on every pay-per-view. They very much cycled people on and off those shows. So given the rosters they had in 93, 94, like what sort of five-match cards would they have produced for an In Your House in, I don't know, October 1993? What mm. sort of five-match card would they have produced for an In Your House in May 1994? Like, when you think that, someone like the One Two Three Kid isn't actually someone we saw on pay-per-view all that much. No. Like, he crops up on some of the bigger shows, but he's, he's not on every single pay-per-view. Like, would he have had more and longer kind of singles pay-per-view matches if he'd have been featured on, yeah, an, an In Your House kind of from around that time? Like, yeah, would we have seen more Adam Bomb? Would we have got a better run for Bam Bam Bigelow? You know, what title defences would you have put on pay-per-view if, you know, you didn't only have to plan 
for a title defence at essentially like Mania and SummerSlam and, and Royal Rumble, like Survivor Series, you don't defend it. So you get long periods of time where perhaps the title doesn't get defended on pay-per-view. So yeah, like I'd, I'd be interested, in fact, if people wanted to tweet us like, yeah, pick a month, pick April 94 and tell me what would you make it in your house out of from the roster available at that time. You might get some really bizarre matches turning up and a massive expansion of storylines yeah what stars would you get pushed on those shows what people that never made pay-per-view you know would manta okay he was in a rumble but would he have got a a pay-per-view match in a singles capacity had he been around kind of Mm. yeah february 95 or had those shows been around february 95 sorry number 66 vincent krasowskis if the wwf hadn't angered the network with pillman's got a gun and had a carte blanche to follow up as they saw fit, would the Attitude Era have followed the exact same course only earlier? I wonder if they had... Cover your ears, Paul. I can't because I'm reading this. Uh, oh, I can actually, yeah. Blown their load too soon. You covered one of your ears there. Well, I'm holding my phone with the notes in the other. Oh, I think that's very likely, yes. They wouldn't have been forced to hide the shotgun Saturday night format on a smaller channel at midnight. They would have just done that nonsense on Raw. So I think some of the stuff we saw when we covered that in January 1997, like by the time you get to the Raw we did in December 1997, some of the mad angles they were having on that weird little secret show, you know, transpose almost onto Raw. So I think it's fair to say, yeah, like if they hadn't pissed off some network executives, that stuff would have been on mainstream television nine, ten months sooner. Because at the point that we're in, the direction the company's going, they are just kind of pushing how far can we push it. And they don't stop until they actually annoy someone that really matters. And I guess the network executives matter because they control the cash flow into it. Yeah. So if no one ever gets annoyed, they'll just keep pushing their stuff until something annoys someone. Yeah, and, and you would point to stuff like Mae Young giving birth to a hand and then more latterly, you know, the HLA stuff with Bischoff or the Billy and Chuck stuff as stuff that they would go as far with it as they possibly could until somebody said, no, stop now. Number 67, Joe Dudley McCoy. What if Steve Austin had never left WCW? Or if he had just been complacent and settled into the ringmaster role, been happy at the lower mid-card and never ascended to main event status? Who would have taken the reins when Sean couldn't go anymore? I'm sure The Rock would have eventually filled that role, but I can't see the Attitude Era being the full-on phenomenon that it was without Austin, particularly Austin versus McMahon, at the head. Also, can you picture Steve Austin being content to be relegated to being a footnote of the industry like so many Mantars and Del Rays? Hard question. That is a hard question. One of the things that, that, that I wondered about is we've just seen on that Raw after WrestleMania the introduction of Dan the Beast and whether they might have been tempted to run slightly early with going with something like a Shamrock, Dan the Beast, maybe having a bit more of an MMA-type angle and feel to the product and, and to trying that out. So, i.e., maybe they might have gone a bit all-in on Brawl for All. Well, if, if Austin never turns up there in the first place, that's an interesting question because they would never had like any of the sort of build that goes towards him. No one would have ever realised that he was there to take a place, so it would never existed. So then who would have been there to have taken that direction? And we know that Sean's going to get injured, so would they have bought someone different in it? If they didn't have Austin, Sean gets injured and Brett's left in this weird sort of alternate reality. Do they they try and bring someone else in to fill that void or do they just promote someone up 
Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, I think you would have seen The Rock fill the role entirely as the phenomenon that carries the WWF and that Austin was. But to to the latter point, like having seen and heard interviews and watched documentaries about Steve Austin, like I can't ever imagine that person being happy in a long-term sort of low-card position. He always comes across as someone who is very ambitious and kind of very willing to or attempting to get ahead. So... No, I kind of can't imagine him being a ringmaster and being happy with that. Like, I almost think, I don't think he would have gone back to WCW had the WWF had no interest in promoting him. But you may have seen him, I don't know, go back to ECW or go to Japan or something like that. Just somewhere where he could have succeeded because he just comes across as someone who wasn't happy with only being at a certain level. Number 68, Thomas Ross. Todd Pettingill. Guilty pleasure or genuinely irritating? Both at times? Yeah, I think at first he was genuinely irritating, but by the end I think I became rather fond of him. I think it's the familiarity, isn't it? You just kind of... It feels like it isn't the show without him there. Yeah, and I think we we all enjoyed the medleys at the Slammy Awards, and I think they did a lot to endear him to us. Yes. Yeah, I got shit and irritating. <laughs> Until that... The Slammy's 96 song. Yeah. That was his big face turn for me. And after that, I always quite liked him, no matter how irritating he was. But I do believe that he became less irritating. And I don't know whether it's what you're saying, Paul, is that he became more familiar. Because he's on all the time, you just generally tend to appreciate that he's there and you don't find him quite as irritating. Or whether he did actually get less irritating. Question number 69, James Musselwhite. Hello, James. What would be your dream five-man new generation Survivor Series team? And can you also come up with a worst combination possible? So shall we all do our bests and then we'll all do our worsts? Yeah, let's do that. So my best was the Heart Foundation. (laughs) Like, if I want to see a five-man team, it is Brett, Owen, Bulldog, Pillman, Neidhart. Okay. I've picked as my best Razor, Brett, Sean, Ahmed Johnson and Vader. Good team. Formidable. Yeah. I've got an A-team and a B-team. Of course you have. <laughs> Do you want to hear my B-team first? Yeah, go on then. So, Vader, Mankind, Owen, Kane and Shamrock, which I think would be a good team. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a good team. But my A-team is just all the, the, the A-listers, really. So, it's Brett, Sean, Austin, Rock and Taker. I think that would be pretty formidable. <laughs> uh, can I go first with my, my worst team? I guess. <laughs> Phineas Godwin, Giant Gonzalez, Fake Undertaker, Bastion Booger and Sniper. Uh, my worst is Tatanka, Jim Duggan, Eight Ball, Giant Gonzalez, and Headbanger Bosch. Uh, I nearly included a Headbanger, but I didn't know which one to pick. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got Bastian Bugger, Phineas Godwin, Jose Estrada Jr., Recon, and The Goon. Oh, The, the goon. goon. Yeah. Doctor, we're running out of time. I'm moving as fast as humanly possible. A cranial postular disectomy is a very dangerous procedure. Scissors. Hurry, please, you've got to. Scalpel. Oh, no. We're not going to make Doctor, it's time! Number 70, James Daly Oliver. Who was the bigger dick, Sean or Hogan? Hogan. See their SummerSlam match. I don't know necessarily as much detail about Hulk Hogan as I do know now about Shawn Michaels. So I'm, I'm tempted just to say Shawn Michaels just... But I can't really have a balance here. I don't know enough about 
Hulk Hogan, don't think. So my answer is Dick, Sean, Asshole, Hogan. (laughs) (laughs) Number 71. Jared Doucette. Has the new generation improved in your eyes? Did it get worse? Did it remain the same? And how would you rank the eras? Rock and wrestling, Hulkamania, new generation, attitude, ruthless aggression, PG era, and reality era, as this era has been called. Honestly, I kind of don't feel outside of our wrestling bubble there's ever been a real reappreciation of this era, so I'm glad we've got to shine some light on it and we've found some like-minded souls that enjoyed it. As far as where you rank it in terms of that list of eras, it very much depends on what you're ranking it on. If you're talking in terms of financial success, then it's probably very much bottom. But if you're going for ranking it in terms of in-ring quality, it's definitely better than the Rock and Wrestling and Hulkamania and potentially even the Ruthless Aggression era, but it depends on what kind of in-ring style you like. Okay, Rock and Wrestling, what were the kind of start-end dates of that? So, So you're looking at that from when Hogan wins the title to maybe like before WrestleMania 3. So okay. you're talking like, yeah, early 84 to late 86. Mm. Hulkamania for me would be, yeah, 87 to 92. Yeah, I, I think it's very hard to objectively rank, and particularly for me not knowing in much depth about other eras. I also think it's difficult because the way in which people, you know, on the way in which I consume wrestling is very much changed. And I think that makes it different because it's easier just to, to dip into things now and pick out the bits that you want to. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, if you're thinking, well, if I can't watch anything live, maybe I've got to go and buy a VHS and then I've got to trawl through this VHS to, to pick the bits that I want. I can't just go on the network and pick a match really quickly that I want to see or I can't just go on, you know, YouTube and just, you know, pick something out really quickly. So I think it's hard to rank things fairly. Yeah, in terms of ranking things, I'm, I'm not sure that I can. I've really enjoyed going back and looking at it because I never saw it the first time. So it doesn't really change my opinion of the era itself because I didn't see it the first time around and it's all been kind of fresh. But I'm watching these different eras of wrestling through different eyes. I watched Hulkamania when I was a child and yeah. I watched Attitude when I was a teenager and I've watched The New Generation when I've been in my 30s. <laughs> so your perspective on life changes, so it's very hard to rank and judge them because you're a different person when you watch them. Question number 72, Charles Johnson What's new generation matches that never happened would you like to have seen? So I've got two that I think didn't happen. One of them I know it did, but I'm going it on the basis that I would have liked to have seen a more high-profile match between these two combinations. So my two are Shawn Michaels versus Hakushi mm-hmm. and Bret Hart versus The Rock. So I know you definitely ah. got that on a random episode of Raw, but it didn't last very long. Hmm. I think that my memory has proven to be very, very uh, ineffectual when thinking of what I have seen. And if you're even struggling to think of things that you do or don't know actually happened, so I find this very tricky. I think there's probably a multitude of matches that I'd like to see the Steiners involved in because they weren't there for that long. And if they'd maintained in the company longer, then I would have liked to have seen, like, weirdly enough, Bulldog and Luger versus the Steiners. We never saw that, right? No, I mean, and Bulldog that, that would and have been, Owen. Yeah, mm. so, so any of those combinations would have been fascinating to see. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm sure that some of the things that I've picked out almost certainly happened, but when, I, when I'm reading these, I mean kind of high-profile versions like maybe pay-for-you matches. So Mankind against Brett, um, the Heavenly Bodies against Razor and the Kid, um, Owen against Mankind, Owen against The Rock, Hakushi against Owen, Owen against Taker. So lots of Owen. 
Yeah, <laughs> evidently. I've got one for shits and giggles. How about an Ahmed versus Sid Iron Man match? <laughs> you see, like we all know, like we're all thinking, God, that'd be terrible. But I think there's a five percent chance <laughs> that if everything aligns, that could be the best match ever. <laughs> yeah, like if you somehow get, I don't know, like July nineteen ninety six versions of both people, and somehow, yeah, it ends up in front of that crowd from International Incident, and you go, my God, like what a spectacle this is! But yeah, it probably would have been a disaster. Number seventy three, Ian Finch. How do you guys think the Attitude Era would have been different if Vince had insisted on pushing the unpopular Rocky Maivia character in a similar way to how Roman Reigns is getting pushed now? Do you think that The Rock would have found success in Hollywood without the much-needed heel turn that landed him in the Nation of Domination? Would he have been able to feud with Stone Cold in the same way? Interesting question, because I'm, I'm tempted to think the Rock has enough personality and charisma and lineage to actually succeed no matter how he's pushed but there's also a possibility that if they really really insisted on pushing the Rocky Marvier character in the way that it was being received in the same way that they do with Roman Reigns then it could have all gone wrong yeah because it needed to be fluid you need to change with with how things need to be seen and that's one thing, like we talked about, what lessons could be learned. And for me, maybe that's like the biggest lesson. They need, to, they need to learn how to change their characters in the way that's going to make the best television. And they need to have patience while they do it and not just bullishly persist with things. Maybe that, in fact, actually explains all these years of refusing to turn Cena heel or refusing to turn Roman heel. It's, you know, maybe Vince looks back and goes, well, I have this really bland, boring guy and I let him kind of be the persona he wanted to be, and he left me to make millions of dollars in Hollywood. God damn it, I'm not doing that for anyone ever again. Yeah, after he really helped my company. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a tough question. I think it'd have, hopefully things would have worked out in the end. It's, it's like you say, it's got the the charisma, it's got the lineage, it's got the talent to get there, but it's, it's, it's always a matter of time, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think if they would have pushed him above Steve Austin as Rocky Maivia, then ultimately his career would have really suffered. If they weren't willing to let him find that character he found, then potentially, yeah, you're looking at another really weird alternate universe where this guy that's gone off and been really successful as this really charismatic guy in Hollywood perhaps wouldn't have been able to find that. And yeah, I don't know if he would have made that transition into Hollywood. Like, would Hollywood have wanted Rocky Maivia in the same way they wanted The Rock? Well, I mean, in that weird version of reality, maybe Hollywood collapses under itself because <laughs> Rocky seems to prop up about 80% of all films made these days. Mm. True, yes. Number 74, Scott Cavaliero. wonder where this is going. Hmm. Please discuss what makes the American males the greatest team of all time. Also, Savio Vega, why four matches? Well, for the, la- the latter, because Razor Ramon hurt his ribs. As for the former... I guess Scott needs to tell us. Well, I, I think what makes the American males the greatest team of all time, I think Scott Cavaliero makes them American males the greatest team of all time. Uh, and also Savio Vega, why not five matches? <laughs> Question 75, Daniel Kelleher. Would you guys consider doing the bonus episode that was discussed back in episode two on the intricacies of the Finnish education system to finally explain why Ludwig Borger hated America so much? I think, given 
the current hostile political climate between the US and Finland, it's probably best that we never make that episode. Mm. Mm. See, that's what I'm talking about when I mentioned at the start of the show about helping with moments for the best of episode. Like, I could have never have told you we had that conversation. Yeah. But like, yeah, Ludwig Borger, remember him? I do remember him, yeah, he was in that great match. Which one? Sorry, he was in that match. <laughs> he did wrestle Marty Jannetty at SummerSlam 93. How about that? Maybe that's what you're thinking of. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Number 76, Jared Griffin. Since King of the Ring 95, Uncensored 96 and Sold Out 97 are probably the three worst shows in your timeline, which one was the worst? Did they have any redeeming qualities? Is the Miss NWO pageant what truly killed WCW? From a personal perspective, of those, weirdly enough, Uncensored 96 is the worst. It felt painful to watch. It felt painful to review. I think I was more prepared for King of the Ring and Sold Out to be thoroughly awful, but I did not realise how awful Uncensored would be. I think they're all awful. I don't really think any of them particularly have any redeeming qualities. I wouldn't want to watch any of them again. Um, (laughs) I think they have different things which makes them awful uh, as well. And in particular, one of the things that really pained me and sold out was the amount of times we heard the MWO music. Yeah. Yeah. That was just horrible. But it was the B-team MWO music, wasn't it? It wasn't even the really good one. Yeah, it, it was just all bad. All bad. Let's move on. So, so what are you picking as the worst one? I think no, I don't know. Not picking a worse one. They, <laughs> I, I, because by picking a worse one that elevates two others to not <laughs> being the worst ones, and I, and I don't think that's fair. I'm going to agree with Adam and say that Uncensored '96 is probably the worst of the three. It's the only show where I flat out gave up reviewing a match. <laughs> Which match was that? The the one I gave up on was the Sting and Booker T against the Road Warriors <laughs> because it just went on for fucking ever. Oh, it, in my mind, I've got forty five minutes. It was probably something more like eighteen. Yeah, I think it's like yeah, I think it's like somewhere between twenty two and twenty seven. But it just went on forever and nothing seemed to be happening. And the rest of the the rest of the card had been such utter shite, and we still had the main event with the fucking yeah. two on eight cage match yeah. to go, like. King of the Ring 95 and Sold Out 97, I think, both have a morbid curiosity about them. Mm. So like you say, Adam, you were prepared for King of the Ring 95 to be real bad and you were prepared for Sold Out to be really bad. So almost in a way you're anticipating it. And yeah, there's a moment where you kind of sit down with a cup of tea, have a pack of biscuits and think, let's watch something shit. And there is that anticipation to it. While as Uncensored 96... I'd kind of got this dark, foreboding feeling because people kept asking us to do it and you'd mentioned that it wasn't very good. So I sat down and thought, let's watch a pay-per-view. And there was a completely different thinking to when I sat down to watch it. I think the thing was, on paper, it shouldn't have been that bad. That, that was one of the things that, that had a, a perhaps a, a very disappointing quality. But yeah, the, the, yeah, I don't want to talk about them. I, th- I think the only one that had any redeeming qualities was sold out. Like, I seem to remember the ladder match being half decent between Six and Eddie Guerrero. And there was a outsider Steiner Brothers tag match that I think, bar all the usual NWO shenanigans, I think we quite liked. But yeah, no redeeming qualities on King of the Ring and certainly no redeeming qualities on Uncensored 96. <laughs> Number 77. Dominic Schendelors. What if 
Vince decided not to drop the ball with Bam Bam Bigelow, instead building him up as a monster heel and as Diesel's challenger for SummerSlam. Yeah, I would have really liked to see that. Sounds good. Yeah, that would have been a very good idea. I don't know if he could have just done something where after he loses to LT at WrestleMania where, I don't know, he just goes mental and like they book him like, you know, as, as sort of a destroyer, have him run through jobbers, have him run through lower card yeah. baby faces, maybe have him win King of the Ring 95 and almost tell it as this, yeah, I went against this mainstream guy, but it, I lost, but it found me my killer instinct or yeah, something like I, that. I'd buy that. He's so infuriated by losing to a non-wrestler that actually just becomes like this vicious killer. Yeah. And and maybe what part of that angle could be other wrestlers teasing him for losing to a non-wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you could play off of, I'm, I'm not sure if they did this, but you could make out like LT was Diesel's mate, so Bam Bam's going after him as revenge kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. It, it's absolutely crazy to think, actually, that Bam Bam Bigelow doesn't make that SummerSlam 95 card when yeah. he's main evented WrestleMania yeah. like five months earlier. Like that card's got quite a few matches on it from what I remember. And it's a pretty decent show, but he's just nowhere to be found. Yeah. Weird. Question 78. Brendan Roche, how long could they have sustained Vader as WWF champion, assuming he had beat Sean at In Your House It's Time? Would it have messed up with the flow of events that played out in 97 and Austin's route to the title to book Vader as an unstoppable force of nature champion? enough to keep Austin from his coronation at WrestleMania 14. I think had Vince had enough faith in Vader, you could have sustained him as champion for as long as you had babyfaces to feed him. Had the WWF been willing to throw Ahmed, Sid, Brett, Sean, Taker and Shamrock to him, then yeah, you could have given him a really solid run as champion. But ultimately, yeah, you're still going to need to go with Austin eventually. I think you could have perhaps given him a short but effective run just to give him a higher status. Yeah, I think Vader would have worked really nicely as a long-term champion because always entertaining, good worker, legitimate as someone that you've really got to struggle to overcome. It would have been fantastic. Number 79, Andrew Titchmarsh. Why do you think The Undertaker was wasted for a large part of the new generation? A lack of credible opponents so you could work good matches. I kind of thought maybe the Hogan philosophy of you just have to put him against monsters... He's big, so you put him against a monster. But the monsters you get are not normally the greatest workers, so you end up with a shit match. Yeah, I, I've got that they still saw him as a sort of Andre the Giant-esque side attraction rather than someone to incorporate into the company as a legit main eventer and part of ongoing storylines. Yeah. So I think we only really saw that in kind of late 96, early 97, where he started to interact with your Bretts and your Shawns and your Austins, like... You know, I, we we went over this kind of ad nauseum, but you can't overestimate the importance of that Mankind feud yeah. Yeah. in terms of making him into a character that kind of fits in with everybody else rather than just someone who exists on his own kind of side piece. Yeah, an interesting character. is the only one that really had a job that maintained it for so long. Maybe that's the actual answer as to why he was wasted in the new generation. He was wrestling part-time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. actually gave up the undertaking in mm. early 97. New WWF figures give you the power of Hulkamania, the knockout Prince of Virgil, the audacity of IRS, and the madness of the Macho Man. Collect new WWF figures now. Sold separately. Dig it. Question 80. James Daly Oliver. What was the worst pay-per-view during the new generation era? King of the Ring 95. Yeah, I'd say King of the Ring 95, but also... I didn't know whether this extended to other promotions. I wouldn't censored 96. Yeah, I, I just stuck with WWF and I've got 
King of the Ring 1995, In Your House 4, if you remember that mm-hmm. one, where Bulldog yeah. sat on Diesel's leg for 20 minutes, and In Your House Degeneration X, which was fucking dreadful as well. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten that one. Question number 81, Joseph Adams. I'd like a bit more talk about Furnace and Lafon. Do you think whether them debuting later on might have led to bigger things for them? Unfortunately, I just think they would have never fit in the WWF ever, really. There was never a time when their style and who they were would have fit in. Like, they weren't characters. They were never characters. Mm. So I just don't see an era where they do fit in. Like, the place I really would have liked to have seen them is 1992 WCW. So some of the tag teams they've got then include the Steiners, Steve Williams and Terry Gordy, Arn Anderson, Larry Zabisco... You've got the Dangerous Alliance knocking around at the time. You've got Dustin Rhodes, people like that. Like, if if you face them up against some tag teams in that promotion in that year, I think that probably would have been their best chance of success in America. Yeah, I, I certainly don't think going later on would help them at all. No. Could they have gone later on and been packaged? Yeah, I guess if you find the right characters for them. Like, it's floated on WWF television in early 1997, the idea of Jim Cornette as their mouthpiece. And I think the only way they get some kind of success is if they have somebody talking for them. Yeah. So Sonny goes in with Legion of Doom eventually, but you not shoved her with Furnace and the Fog. Well, they do, don't they? No. Well, she, she talks about them though doesn't she She she's never officially their manager okay but she kind of has that spiel about she introduces them as being underused don't they or or yeah on on that sunny segment on shotgun saturday night whatever it is yeah Mm. number 82 jacob federico what do you believe was the absolute worst gimmick during the new generation period weirdly enough i kind of think jeff jarrett country singer country singer Unlikable country singer toss piece. It's not a good gimmick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably not a bad shout. Isaac Yankum. Evil wrestling dentist yeah, yeah, is pretty, bad, pretty yep. bad, yeah. Giant Gonzalez. Yeah. What was he even supposed to be? Kind of like a Sasquatch type thing? Giant naked caveman. <laughs> but what was Bastian Burger? Yeah. yeah. Fat, disgusting slob. Yeah. That's not even a job. Number 83. Emmett Gates. I think a point of discussion should be a comparison between Brett and HBK's title reigns and who had the better title run. Brett in 94, HBK in 96. Both won the belt at WrestleMania and dropped at Survivor Series of the same year. Also a question for Stuart, as a fellow Mark for Brett, what is opinion on the irony that, when it came down to it, Vince picked HBK over Brett for the long term and within five months he had neither in the end up? And how would Brett have fitted into an Austin-led world in the WWF in 98 and 99 had he remained? Well, as much as I love Brett, I think it's hard to argue against Sean's first championship run in 1996. Like, the quality of matches he has against the likes of Diesel, Mankind, Bulldog, Vader, like, that's a really strong run. But Mm. like I said earlier, like, Brett doesn't have those shows in 94 to have that run against. Mm. So he has some very good TV matches. I don't think Brett does fit into the WWF in 1998 and 1999 purely because he doesn't agree with the direction. That said, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think having Austin capture the title from Brett at WrestleMania 14 instead of Sean would have been quite the story had they... Or had he been around for them to tell it? I think like we're talking about how Shawn Michaels would have struggled to get on with Austin 
had he stayed around, I think Brett would have found it easier to get on and work with him and yeah. under under him possibly. But I, I agree, I think Shawn Michaels' run is a better run as a champion. Yeah, I'd concur with that. And there doesn't seem to be any way that Brett was going to get on with the company company direction at the time. If he's unhappy with it when he leaves, I mean, it gets far worse than that in terms yeah. of what he's talking about. Question number 84, Simon Pezik-Smith. I'd like to know what happens between Taker and Kane after WrestleMania 14. I don't know if this was like directly after whether he thinks they just go backstage and have some cucumber sandwiches, but... <laughs> well, they definitely it's... don't do that. Yeah, I think it's unlikely. Basically, Simon, they spend about 15 years either as tag team partners or feuding with each other. It turns out that Paul Bearer is Kane's biological father. Taker eventually joins back up with Bearer and turns into a full-on undead zombie wizard, while Kane has one of my favourite runs of his as an odd couple team with X-Pac in early to mid-1999 mm. mm. after he is briefly infatuated with China after they have him in the corporation where they briefly section him. (laughs) (laughs) They do the whole as well, are they, aren't they, together stuff through like mid-98. They do triple threats with Austin. They have them tag teaming with each other. They have them tag teaming against each other. You know, all sorts goes on between them pair for a very long period of time. Are they the pair of wrestlers that have had most interaction with each other over the course of the longest period of time? I think Sting and Ric Flair would probably be a good shout for that as well. But mm. yeah, like Taker and Kane might might be the top one. Because every single possible iteration of anything they could have done has basically been done. What about Hogan and Piper? They must have... Yeah, yeah that, that would probably be another one where they interacted across various companies. Certainly in the WWF, like their tenures are pretty much unmatched in terms of length. So, and yeah, whenever Taker comes around, you will get some kind of interaction with Kane, even as recent as, was it like 2014, where they had him teaming with, or no, 2012, 2013, when they had him teaming with Brian and Kane against Mm. the Shield and stuff very briefly. Mm. Number 85, Mark McDonald. Should Ken Shamrock have gotten the title in 97 at some point? Transitional champion, maybe? I would have liked to have seen it because I quite enjoyed his work. And I always think that I can't believe from what we saw of how Ken Shamrock turns around from being this very dual character to being this absolute rampaging nutcase who's great fun to watch and doesn't actually capture the belt. Mm. Because I thought he had enough momentum to do it, but maybe there's just not enough space for him at the top. You know, I'm not sure it would have been necessarily the best move, but that's not to say that I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I think I'd have quite enjoyed it. And I also think it could have been used to get some more mainstream media attention, possibly, if it was done right. Yeah, I, I think late 97, early 98 is when Shamrock stood the most chance of becoming a world champion. I would have had no problem with him being the main title holder for a short period of time. I think had Brett stayed and been near the top, he would have had no problem putting Shamrock over. Yeah. And I think maybe not to the level of what he did for him with Austin, but I think Brett could have had a series of matches on pay-per-view with Shamrock that built his credibility as a professional wrestler, and being as they seem to be on quite good terms, I'm sure Brett would have had no problem kind of putting him over. Yeah. Number 86. Nick Evans. In an alternate universe where it was actually Shawn Michaels that jumped through the barbershop window, do you think Marty Jannetty would have been able to ascend to main event status? 
You know, in Avengers Infinity War, where Doctor Strange looks through like time and all possible universes, where, you know, he, he comes back and spoilers for anyone who's not seen it, but it's been out six months and Paul, you have no idea what I'm talking about. He comes back and says, you know, I found one in 16 billion where we defeat yeah. Thanos. In this scenario, he would see zero universes. <laughs> where Marty Gennetti ascends to main event status. Has he just got too many issues to actually make it up to that level? And Vince doesn't love him as much as he loves Sean to overlook said personal issues. Yeah, because, I mean, he's definitely... He's talented, and he does amazing matches, but he's constantly fired. Yeah. And constantly doing crazy things. And, yeah, Vince doesn't have his boner for him, so... Unfortunately not, because mm. I would have loved to have seen it. Yeah, I put sadly no, um, certainly not as a long term, but maybe he could have had a, a match if not a run. Number 7087. <laughs> 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 Want to try that one again? No. Nope. Ryan Hall. Do you understand the logic of sometimes having guys pull double duty on Royal Rumble shows and sometimes not? I understand the reasons for it, when you have a loaded roster, you don't need to do it. But when you don't have a loaded roster, like 95, you do. But it always feels so arbitrary as to who goes in the rumble and who doesn't of those who have faced off on the undercard. Personally, I don't like it. You should either be in the rumble or have a non-rumble match on the card. The only exception for me is when the story calls for it, like Brett in 94 or when, you remember, I think it's 2003, where Lesnar Big Show have like a qualification match. Right. Or like 96, where on the free-for-all, Duke Drosy and Triple H, yeah. you know, winner is number one, loser is number 30, or sorry, the other way around. That would yeah. be a terrible prize. <laughs> <laughs> You'd lose on purpose, wouldn't you? But... <laughs> Yeah, like if there's a storyline reason for it, then yes. If not, I kind of like, I think it cheapens it for people to be in a match and the Rumble. Yeah, I don't particularly like it because, I say, you've been in a match, the undercard, and then for me, the the Rumble should always really be the main event, and that should have people that you haven't seen it. Just in my mind, I think when you're saying that there sometimes is logic for it when you've just not got enough people to fill out a pay-per-view, but that very rarely happens. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's simple necessity, isn't it? And it's one of those things, if I, if I was a wrestler, I'd be, I'd be willing to, to do double duty because of the potential reward of, of winning. Yeah. Number 88, David Gray. Sid's second run. Complete fluke or perfect set of circumstances? Both, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> there something very odd happened and... I think we, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit. Whether he just came out and just and somehow that crowd gives him a lift and he suddenly thinks, oh, hang on a minute, uh, I'll, I'll just try. <laughs> <laughs> or whether it was something like really strange, like somewhere in another part of the world, a woman gives birth to a cat or something and there's a total eclipse and the sea turns to blood <laughs> and suddenly Sid's great. I don't know. Did you see or hear that interview he did on Sean Mooney's podcast where he without any trace of irony declared himself the hardest working wrestler of all time <laughs> <laughs> no I didn't yeah that that is a, a thing that happened 
tremendous. I think it's one of those situations where, you know, like if you say something enough, it becomes true. Like, for whatever reason, that one crowd at International Incident was so convinced that Sid was great and that Sid was over that every other crowd for the next six months was convinced Sid was great <laughs> and Sid was over. And we were convinced that Sid was great and Sid was over. Because his work rate was better. Yeah. yeah. Like, fucking Sid's kipping up in matches. Like, that never happened. Although, before. to be fair, that kip up was in 95 when was he was it? shit. But, but he can. He just does more stuff. It's, it's, his selling isn't so shit. Or maybe it is, and my mind has been warped. And so I don't know. What's that Mandela effect they call yeah, it? Yeah, I think, yeah. You've heard of him, right, Paul? Yes. Number 89, Dominic Schendelors. What if Sean didn't lose his smile? He still finds a way to weasel out of losing to Brett <laughs> at WrestleMania. Yeah, no think, matter what. My note just says, same old shit. What Stuart said. Question number 90. Jose Angel Garcia. What gimmicks did you hate at first, but now you love? This is the one question I haven't actually got an answer for. Like, genuinely, I feel like I don't change my opinion too much on things like that. Like, I like lots of terrible things, like Papa Shango (laughs) and Kamala and stuff like that, but I don't feel like I ever didn't like those things. I think there may be one that has changed for me, and I think it's IRS. In that I hated IRS. I'd really hate the gimmick of Taxman. But actually, after watching him every bloody week, for some reason, I find it hilarious. And so I think I kind of like it. Is it because every time you see him pick up a microphone, you think, he's going to say something different this time? <laughs> oh, wait, no, he's not. It's got to the point when he picks up the mic, I've never seen the match before, but I can lip sync what he says. <laughs> I think I'm with Stuart on this. I don't tend to change my mind. I'm, I'm far too judgmental. <laughs> Adam's on things like that, face. I, I change my mind all the time but <laughs> <laughs> hang on hang on did you just change your mind I'm not changing your mind no I, I know what I mean I change my mind about things not necessarily people I don't know I, I ha- <laughs> where the fuck are you going with this I don't know Number 91. (laughs) Ashley Clements. What was your most and least favourite podcast episode to record? I don't think it is like my favourite episode to record, but my favourite part of an episode was the the Bad Blood main event, even though the undercard and that shit and we talked about Pillman. But that one point, because we talked about it probably for the best part of about 45 minutes, on that, the storyline, the feud, the match and everything that happened with it, I just thought it was one of my favourite things to do that we've actually done. I, I think we went over an hour, actually. Yeah, yeah it, it was so crazy, but so great. I just, I really enjoyed it. As far as the worst, it's fairly obvious, it was Beware a Dog, because... <laughs> <laughs> because you had to stop recording well, to be sick. <laughs> well, yeah, because it didn't even last the whole thing out. And that episode was only 90 minutes. <laughs> oh, he's a killer. I haven't drank that much Guinness since, you know. 
Mm. Does it put you off? I just tend to mix up my beers loads now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've got a few that, that, I, that I really enjoyed. Because I think you listen back to the show more than Adam and I do. Like, for me, because I... I've said a number of times, like, I'm quite critical of what we do. So when I've finished an episode, I've edited it, I've exported it, I very rarely tend to go back and listen because more often than not, I'm making notes on the next one or I'm, you know, I can hear every, like, thing wrong with something mm. that or we're listening breathing. to. Or your breathing, etc. yeah. Or, or what I feel is a bad edit or a clip that doesn't quite end right or whatever. Like... I tend to not want to go back and listen to them for that reason. So, yeah, you've probably got a better idea than Adam or I of, like, what your favourite ones are. Well, and, and my reason for listening to them is, effectively, it's, it's perhaps a little bit sad, but my reason often for listening to them is I don't get to see you guys that much. Often I get to see you guys maybe once a, once a fortnight when we record. Yeah. So often it, this is my only form of socialisation, <laughs> apart from, you know, being being kind of with the, with the family and the kids, you know, putting this on, and I feel like I'm with my friends again. So... We didn't see you for 10 months at the start of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, in the reality is, I didn't see you guys as much in that 10 months as I would have as when we were doing the podcast. And, True. you know, that's kind of one of the reasons for doing the podcast. And it's also one of the reasons that, in terms of enjoyment of the show, the quality of the show that we're watching and what we're reviewing doesn't tend to affect it, because what I enjoy about it is what we do and what we have. And it's those other factors that put the limits on it. So the ones that I didn't necessarily enjoy are, are some of the ones where I've got other factors forcing me. So I've had shows where I've got messages pinging through from Mrs. Scrivens, <laughs> being a bit angry, why am I not home? And, <laughs> and that takes some of the fun out of it. And we've also had, you know, there, there was certainly one, I can't remember the episode, but we recorded at my house. I'm going to talk about this, so hold, hold your horses. Okay, yeah. We, we, we've, got, we've got somewhere I've, uh, you know, we've been really late and I'm just super tired and it's, and it's not what we're reviewing, it's just those external circumstances. The ones that I've, I've enjoyed doing, I really enjoyed doing the most recent episode because it was a lot of fun to do it again after, after the break. The, the last couple as well, so to, to do WrestleMania 14... That was that was a really nice feeling because it, it kind of it had that end of term feel to it, so that was fun. And of course, doing the the NGP live that the two parts, so the opportunity to to do the podcast with Mike and Bryce in Wolverhampton and to do the show in London, it was that was just completely different and and a lot of fun. So my least favorite, and Paul mentioned it, was Super Brawl Eight because <laughs> we did it at Paul's house and we didn't start recording until like nine o'clock. And we kept having to pause because Angola was crying. By the time we finished, it was like 2am and I was fucking exhausted. And I think we all had work the next day. Scrivens definitely fell asleep at a couple of points. Yeah. Oh, and we absolutely. had to stop to wake him up. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was one of those nights. So we, we were recording at mine because that's the only time we could record, wasn't it? Because Mrs Scrivens had gone out, so I couldn't come over here. So I was very much having to get the kids to bed. But because Baby Scrivens had seen you guys arrived, he was excited and so wouldn't settle down to go to sleep and would kept coming down the stairs. And then later on in the evening, something must have been up with N'Golo because he kept crying and kept having to go up there. And yeah, I was knackered. Yeah, so were we. So as far as one I remember enjoy recording, WrestleMania 13. So I've actually gone back and listened to that one the last couple of nights since I kind of made these notes. And then I remember it was the one we recorded right before Adam and I went to Dallas. Mm. So... A, it was a very interesting show to cover. We got to cover the Brett Austin double turn. But, 
yeah, like, so in the run-up to Dallas, I'd worked 10 days straight at work. And the job I was doing then involved a lot of, like, 14-hour shifts. Yeah. And I'd done 10 days of that, of which seven of them were these long shifts. And I remember getting up at, like, five in the morning to do notes for the shows before get going to work at, like, 7 a.m. So we recorded on the Friday afternoon before we left for Dallas on the Monday. So I literally finished work in the morning at like midday, came here, you guys were already waiting, ready to set up and we recorded. And even though I was completely knackered, like I was just raring to go because we had a really interesting show to discuss. And yeah, there was this real kind of air of excitement about going to WrestleMania for the first Mm. time. So yeah, that's the one I've probably got down as my favourite. Cool. Mm. Number 92, Adam Bagshaw. Do you think it would have worked better if Shawn Michaels had been the cocky pretty boy heel that got him over when he was champion? No. I think he was playing the right character when he became champion in 1996. The crowds were ready for him to be a babyface. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with that. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He could have made it work. He probably wouldn't have been as effective. Question number 93. Tom Baker. Who do you think the top three wrestlers from WCW are who could have had the biggest impact in the WWF in the new generation era? So far and away, Sting, had Vince gotten him in 1993, he would have gotten Luger's babyface spot, I'm sure of it. If Vince could have had Sting turn up on that helicopter and slam Yokozuna, I think that would have been a far yeah. more successful babyface run than Luger's, and I think Sting would have done well there. I also actually think mid-90s Vince would have really liked plucky babyface, and this is for you, Scott, Marcus Alexander Bagwell. (laughs) And I've said it a number of times before, but DDP in 1997 WWF would have been interesting. Yeah, I I had a bit of a struggle thinking about this. I was trying to think about people that just didn't go there, but about everyone went to WWF eventually. I'd sting down because I think any era that you take sting, while the two companies are running parallel, is going to be a massive deal. Yeah, and he's going to do huge stuff. If he could have picked up Goldberg before he started really making waves with WCW, then yeah. he would have immediately seen this guy can be something massive, and I'll do something with him. Also, Alex Wright. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I struggled with this um, to some extent because a lot of the people that I was thinking of had already been in the WWF and and gone over. I think Stuart in this episode has already shown that Mounts to this was wrong because I came up with any three strands to make the cruiserweight division good. So, that, <laughs> so if I was picking people to go over a group of three, I'd have picked three cruisers to build a cruiserweight division around. Yeah, because I think if I would have liked to have seen Taka face people in 97, you're talking Ray, you're talking Ultimo Dragon, yeah. and you're talking like Hooventude or Psychosis. Mm. Like Those are the people you'd want to see Taka have matches with. Number 94. Gunnar Sandham Beckering. What was the most difficult storyline you had to review? I think everything around the Pillman Marlena stuff. That was quite awkward, and particularly during part of the way through the angle is when Pillman died. Then obviously getting the, the stuff with Vince and Manley afterwards was was hard to talk about. Yeah, I've put the Pillman death. Yeah, I know it doesn't really qualify as a storyline, but in terms of a being a topic we had to discuss and I had to research and write about and review to an extent, then, yeah, Brian Pillman's death was tough. It it, it felt like something that was difficult to analyse in the way we normally approach things on the show. Yeah. So even with the kind of the most difficult of situations or weird of stories, like we'll try and approach it with an angle of humour. Mm. 
Mm. Like whereas yeah. that there was just there you was can't. you you just couldn't no. like there was no way in to kind of make light of that situation and yeah you know Vince interviewing Melanie on the Raw after his death is just repulsive to this yes. day like yeah. and when anyone asks me like what is the worst thing you think Vince has ever done it's always that yeah ninety five Lee Craig which one match that you covered best encapsulates what was good about the new generation era. And which one match encapsulates what was worst about the new generation era? So for best, I've got Brett versus Owen at WrestleMania 10 because it was a good storyline and it was a great match. And worst was Doink times four versus the Head Shrinkers, Bigelow and Bugger at Survivor Series because it was a bad match and a bad storyline. See, for, for my bad, I had Piper against Lawler because that was a bad match and just the whole idea about positioning that when you're trying to to launch your idea about having your new different style and stars, I thought was just silly. For the best match, I couldn't really decide about either Canadian Stampede or the Hell in a Cell. Yeah, both good shouts. I picked for the best the Final Four main event, because it's got four really interesting characters, there's a lot of stuff going down in there, the action's really great. And for the worst, and I've got this right, Survivor Series 93. Yeah. Um, Mm. Bastian Burger, the Head Shrinkers and Bigelow against Men on a Mission and the Bushwhackers. The one where Bastian Boog is eating a big chicken. Yes. Or something. Absolutely shit. And actually, talking about shows that I kind of didn't enjoy reviewing so much, that was one of them. Because that we did three times, effectively, didn't we? No, we did twice. Well, we did the first hour twice on the first take, didn't we? Oh, did we? Because Adam forgot to record it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So So the first hour of that show, we recorded three times. Well, I've forgotten to record this one as well. (laughs) <laughs> I can see the lights on me. <laughs> Question 96, Gareth Scannell. Who would your four heads on your new generation route much more be? A fun caveat would be to if you had to name one that doesn't include any world champions from the era. So I'm thinking no Brett and more Jimmy Del Rey. So I've done two. One if we are doing world champions and one if we're not. So if we are doing world champions, it's Sean, Brett, Taker, Austin. And if we're not doing world champions, then it's Owen, Bulldog, Razor and Mr. Perfect. Say Mount Rushmore again. Mount Rushmore. Okay. Why? No reason. I only did the non-champion one. So I put uh, Vader, Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson and the British Bulldog. Because I just think it'd look really cool. Now, I've got somebody who's a champion, but not a champion during the era. Okay. Okay. So I, I, for my non-champion ones, I had Mankind, Vader, Owen and Ahmed Johnson. For my just pick overall, including champions, uh, it was exactly the same as yours, Stuart. So, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Steve Austin and The Undertaker. I oh, should have done a funniest looking one as well. The funniest looking Mount because, Rushmore. Like, yeah, if you had like Mantar, Max Moon. Giant Gonzalez. Yeah. And Bastian Booger. <laughs> just just, like, just like the, the most Actually, weird looking one. Jeff Jarrett's outfits. <laughs> or a Mount Rushmore that is just all four Buriquas. Yes. yes. Or, in fact, all four DOA, because two of them are identical. <laughs> in fact, Crush and Chains look quite similar as well. So it's like two people. Two pairs. Number 97, David Light. Are you officially sick of the new generation product? For example, if there was another two years worth of new gen style wrestling, storyline, pay-per-views and gimmicks to watch, would it have been a slog for the three of you or would you have relished it? I wouldn't say that I'm sick of it. Because actually, I really enjoyed watching it evolve. Saying that, I wouldn't want another two years of it. Like, 
if you had to take one point, so if we take 95 and expand that for two more years, I don't really want that. To be fair, I think the end of 95 was okay. There was a couple of decent shows at the end. No, it's not It's not a chore. It wouldn't be a chore to do it for two more years. Would I relish it? No, because I think there's probably more interesting things that we could and perhaps maybe we will do. So, yeah, not a chore for me, no. Yeah, it depends what kind of new generation style we're talking about. Could I stomach another couple of years worth of 1995? Absolutely not. Could I take more of 96, 97? Yeah, I probably could. And I could even go for more 93, 94 style stuff because that's what I grew up on. Looking back, I kind of wish like we'd found a way to hang around 93, 94 a bit more because it feels like we really rocketed through those first 18 months because we really only covered the pay-per-views. We did the free-for-all TV episode, but other than that, like 93, 94 was done by episode 10. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think from what I remember, 95 begins with episode 11. So, yeah, we hung around in 95 a bit more, 96 even more, 97 way more. But yeah, so I could probably go for a bit more 93, 94 because I enjoy that era of stuff. Number 98, David Gray. Which TV matches outside of those in the Free For All 94 episode would you recommend? So I'm guessing this one falls upon me. This falls upon you because I can't remember what I've seen. Well, yeah, because you intermittently watched Raws with me while I was washing them. And obviously, Paul, yeah, you kind of only caught the bits I would actively tell you to watch. Okay, so here's 10 matches from our era that we didn't cover that I'd absolutely recommend checking out, and they're all from Raw. So I excluded stuff like Owen versus the Bulldog for the European title because we did cover that. Yes. I disqualified Cactus Jack versus Triple H in the street Mm. fight because we covered that. So this is all stuff we didn't do. Okay, Mr. Perfect reverses Ric Flair, loser leaves town match from the 25th of January 93. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mr. Perfect versus Doink the Clown in a King of the Ring qualifying match from the 24th of May 93. Doink the Clown versus Marty Jannetty in a two out of three falls match from the 21st of June 93. I think you showed me that, and yes, it is great. Yeah, like it's way yeah. better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Yeah. The Steiner Brothers versus Money Inc. in a cage match from the 23rd of August 1993. Have you put an IRS match on that? I have put an IRS match on there. Excellent. <laughs> Bret Hart versus Jeff Jarrett from the 16th of January 1995. Bret has William Shatner in his corner in this one. I'm sorry, wow. what? Yep. Alundra Blaze versus Bull Nakano from the 3rd of April 1995. So this isn't the one we reviewed for the free-for-all. It's the one where Bertha Faye debuts at the end and Alundra wins the title back from Bull. But it's a good sprint. Right. Owen Hart versus the British Bulldog from the 5th of June 1995. So this is not their European title match. This one is from right before the Bulldog turns heel. And if I remember correctly, it's the King of the Ring qualifier as well, Mm. I think. Okay. Hakushi versus the 123 Kid from the 20th of November 1995. This is different from their SummerSlam match as the roles are reversed with Hakushi as the babyface and Kid as the heel. So it's a different dynamic there. And the next match is actually from the same episode of Raw. So it goes to speak to how good this episode is. Owen Hart versus Shawn Michaels. Yeah, It's Mm. the one where Shawn collapses from the post-Syracuse concussion. Uh, And you get that really good angle after it. And finally, I've got Owen Hart and the British Bulldog versus Doug Furness and Philip Lafon from the 20th of January, 97 Raw. It's better than the pay-per-view match at In Your House Final Four that we covered. It's really good. Cool. Question number 99. Lee Craig. Was Diesel unfairly maligned in terms of his drawing power and match quality? Considering the overall state of the business during his reign and the backwards booking, i.e. E.G., seven-foot-tall underdog babyface, 
or was he a primary cause of WWF's 1995 decline? I think he's quite easy to point out as being quite a big problem or a big part of the problem with 1995 because he's essentially the face of the company as he's the champion for 90% of the year. It's hard to say whether he's unfairly maligned for this because we don't know what they would have done with anybody else on top, but he's definitely a victim of the backwards booking that Lee refers to. It's so bizarre that the night he loses the title is the first time he becomes interesting all year. The tweener character he plays in his last six months with the promotion is infinitely more watchable than the smiling, easygoing babyface he played as champion. To say he's the primary cause of the decline is perhaps an oversimplification, but the role he played definitely contributed to it. Yeah, he's he's inconsistent in his work as as the title holder in the face of the company, but he can't be blamed as the decline for it because it's not just him. The whole product appears to be in a bit of a decline at that time. Yeah, yeah, I put it's, it's a bit of both really. It's unfair to pin too much on one person. You know, pointing to the depth of the roster and and what he had around him to work with would have been a contributing factor. Question number one hundred: Michael Shea Burkery. The most common perception of the new generation era in the WWF is that it's terrible and not really good outside of a few gems. Having watched your way through it, do you feel this reception is or isn't warranted? Well, I've put that it's better than I think it's, uh, than it's generally publicised as. I think it's often looked down on in terms of its position within the eras and that it's not that good, but it is better than that reputation gives it. I think it may just be looked down on because it's not as big as what came before it and it's not as big as what came after it. So people just assume that it's probably a more terrible place than it actually is. Mm. Yeah, I, I felt that perhaps other eras have the crowd to fit the product as much as the product to fit the crowd. And the fact that the audiences and attitudes were changing and probably that the WF didn't really keep up with that. Overall reputation, I think, is fair. But again, in comparison, I think other eras are probably remembered more fondly than they deserve to be, and this one is perhaps a little less so. Yeah, so having watched and discussed this era in what I'd like to think is more detail than perhaps (laughs) everyone ever, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that it isn't terrible. Perhaps more than anything, it's intriguing. I don't feel like there's any other five-year period in WWF history where the product morphs so completely. Like, yes, if you watch something from 1983 and then something from 1988, they look very different, but there's almost a gradual and logical transition. With the new generation, you get 93 with its attempt to remake Hawkamania with Luger. You get 94 with the rise of the Hart family and the click to prominence. You get 1995 where things get real bad. You get 1996 where they are forced to try and combat major competition for the first time in forever. And you get 1997 where they find their feet in a way of what will make them successful. If you look at 1993 and 1997 in isolation, you can in no way draw a straight line from one to the other. They're so very, very different. Even when the promotion is at its worst in 1995, you get a few solid shows. SummerSlam 95, Survivor Series 95 and In Your House 5 are all standout shows that I'd recommend people to watch from any era. I think the Hulkamania era and the Attitude era are more fondly remembered by people simply because there were more people watching during those periods and those periods transitioned somewhat into mainstream pop culture, whereas this era didn't. When I'm able to have a conversation with someone who watched from 92 to 95 and enjoyed it, I always feel a connection because 
yeah, like these were the dark ages of the WWF, which I've said like approximately 96 times. <laughs> you know, so anyone that did watch and appreciate it, there's almost a kinship there, I think. And yeah, getting to discuss the perks of SummerSlam 93 with someone or how good WrestleMania 10 is. Because we can all discuss how great WrestleMania 17 or WrestleMania 6 is. Yeah. But there's fewer people that are going to be able to have an appreciation for that lesser time. Mm. So I, I think its reputation isn't as warranted as... It is like I actually think, yeah, like if you invest the time in it, there is plenty of good stuff to be found. But yes, you do have to trawl through King of the Ring 95. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I am tormented. What's troubling you, my dear? Two months ago, I started watching the new WWF generation with my husband. Suddenly, I felt this instant attraction. Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, Brett the Hitman Hart. Oh, Father, thoughts of these men consume my most intimate moments. I feel so unfaithful. Please forgive me. Oh, I think we can work something out. The new WWF generation. Put your faith in us. Question 101. Tom Canning, what's the maddest things that have happened to you because of the podcast? It's a tricky one. I mean... I think for me, just over a year ago, we had, you know, just over a week, which seemed pretty insane. Our trip down to Wolverhampton just over a year ago, where we got to watch King of Trios, and the subsequent weekend in which we did the podcast festival in London, it was just something else. So there was was lots of things that happened during that time. But, you know, getting to do the, the podcast with Mike and Bryce, just getting to talk to fans of the show kind of on that personal level was amazing. You know, having a sign at King of Trios, that was a personal one <laughs> for me. Um, but yeah, that that was just a really insane time. Like like I think you'd said to me before, like I kind of existed a little bit more outside the bubble or inside the bubble, which way do I look at it? I don't know. Outside. Outside the bubble than, than you in terms of you interacting. And Adam, to some extent, with people who listen to the show a bit more. But that was my first real experience of getting to meet people on, on kind of a on a large scale, and that was just quite something that blew me away. Quite similar to Paul, really. I think that, obviously, that point where we did the podcast with Mike and Bryce and then where we did the podcast in down in London, that that time was really surreal and felt very, very peculiar that we were doing stuff like that. So I'd say that that was pretty mad. The meet that we did in Dallas yeah, at that Ginger Man pub was just incredible. The You know, the people that we met there were all fantastic and... Yeah, it was just just a lovely, lovely night. And I think the the amount of genuinely friendly and nice people that we've met during it, who we would never have met without this podcast, just seems quite strange. If you really think about and plant yourself back five years or so, and say, well, you know, you do this and it'll have this sort of like following, and you'll meet all these really nice people, mm. I just wouldn't have believed it. So it was a very, very strange. And I also got Steph McGovern's autograph. And I've got Tacker's autograph, thanks to James Musselwhite. Yes, you have indeed. Before I go into my answer, interestingly enough, one of my friends who lives in London messaged me earlier in the week and said, oh, I've seen this advert for a podcast festival. Do you think you'll ever do it? And I was like, yeah, we did it last year. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? Yeah, I invited you. You didn't come. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it's still mad to me that anyone listened at all. While we were able to look at what I think is a gap in the podcast market at the time. Did I think that we would be the ones in any way to 
fill it when we started and kind of finish what we started. No, I didn't. It's even madder that for the better part of 10 months that we went away and that when we came back, people are still willing to listen. It's absolutely mad that I got to go to America and record a podcast with people I was watching on DVDs 10 years earlier. (laughs) It's mad that people took time out of their WrestleMania week in Dallas to come and spend the evening in a pub with us. It's mad that people were willing to part with their money to buy a ticket to come and see us. It's mad that people were willing to part with their money to own a CD with Paul singing on it. It's mad that people were willing to part with their cash to have a Christmas card that we'd written to them. It's mad that anybody cared at all. Yeah, yeah. It's mad that we're still sitting here answering 101 questions, summarising 96 <laughs> episodes and numerous pieces of bonus content nearly five years into producing the show. Mm. Yeah, completely crazy. Uh, and one thing that I just thought of is, is when you were recognised by your voice in a pub. Yeah. And then that person gave you beer. Yeah, that, that was probably turns into the best Weatherspoons I've ever been in. Yeah, it's even madder that Paul bought a round of Jaeger bombs, bombs yeah, yeah. which has never happened before true, or since. True lunacy. Indeed. I'm not sure I've been out since. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are then. Match of the new generation and MVP of the new generation. So when we did these categories on our normal pay-per-views, these awards always represented our personal favourites rather than something that might be objectively the best. So take this as favourite rather than best from each of us as, yeah, those are two completely different categories. And we've actually done these as a top five countdown and we'll do them as a little bit of a a round robin counting them down. So, Adam, match of the new generation, your number five, please. What's the main event from Canadian Stampede? Good shout. Ten-man tag. I think I should have gone before you because mine is also the main event of the Canadian Stampede. (laughs) You've not copied me, have you? Did you look at my notes? It sounds like you just copied me. I know it sounds like that, but I don't think I did. My number five is Shawn Michaels versus Sid from Survivor Series 96. Or is that the Mm. Jose Lothario camera incident? That's the one where New York City turn on the WWF champion and side with Sid (laughs) and he gets all pissy and he lands on his head like a tree and and Jose gets hit with the camera and the crowd love it when Sid wins. Yeah. Yeah, great match. Great match. At number four... I've gone for one of my personal favourites, Shawn Michaels versus Diesel at Good Friends, Better Enemies. I, I fucking love that. I'm actually surprised you didn't have that higher. Mm. Yeah, I thought you might. For my number four, I'm also going to have Shawn Michaels, but this time I'm going to have him against Mankind from Mind Games. Yeah, also a really good pick. Number four, Brett the Hitman Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13. Number three for me is the... Final four main event, the the fatal four-way. Yep. Because it was dead good. Love Vader. If anything, I thought you should have had that at number four. <laughs> <laughs> That's too many fours. Number three, Shawn Michaels. This time against Razor Ramon in the ladder match from WrestleMania 10. My number three is Brett the Hitman Hart versus Owen Hart from WrestleMania 10. That is interesting. Because my number two is Brett the Hitman Hart versus Owen Hart from WrestleMania 10. That's your number two? Yeah. Time for my number two, then. My number two is Brett versus Owen from WrestleMania 10. Yeah, so you you two both have that one position higher than me. Mm. Interesting. My number two is Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker from Bad Blood in Your House. My number one is Shawn Michaels versus (laughs) The Undertaker from Bad Blood in Your House. My number one is Shawn Michaels against The Undertaker from Bad Blood in Your House. Okay, so 
talk me through them, each of you, why that's your number one match of the new generation. Well, I think we spent an hour doing that when we did the episode. But it's essentially, for me, it's the first time you see a match like that. It's a massive spectacle. It's got great performances from everyone in it. Uh, it does some really, really interesting stuff, inventive storytelling, the way they get out the cage. Sean's crazy blade in mid-air. Like, I mean, it's, it's got full of little things like that that just make it amazing. And then it has the most astounding debut of like possibly my favourite character when Kane comes out. I just absolutely loved it. I think it's just the perfect mix of all the components coming together at the right times and in the right proportions, isn't it? So, absolutely, the long-term storytelling is brilliant. The performance from both of them is brilliant. As Adam said, that little detail about um, how the engineer to get out the cage to do that is is stellar. And then you've got the introduction of Kane. It's it's all pretty much perfect. I don't, I don't think if you if you to shoot it as a film, I don't know if you could do it as good. My number one, then? Can I guess? If, if you like. Does it involve Bret Hart? Well... Can we name a match in, in that top five that any of us picked that didn't involve Brett or Sean? No. Adam's just checking his notes. No. There you go. Brett the Hitman Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin at Survivor Series 1996. So, you know, I, I think I gushed over it in the same way <laughs> that you guys gushed over Hell in a Cell at the time, and I did as well, but this match in particular for me, like... People often point to WrestleMania 8, Savage and Flair as being this like almost really perfect 45 minutes of television from, you know, pre-match interviews, the match and post-match interviews. Like for me, this match does a very similar thing. You had the anticipation of Brett's return after six months away. What was he going to be like? What was he going to be about? You had the months of Austin goading him into this match. You have that really phenomenal promo. Like, you know, I, I genuinely do believe Brett's underrated as a promo guy. Like, is he an Austin? Is he a Rock? Is he a Hogan? Is he a Flair? No, he isn't. But I think for the character he portrayed, he was very good at what he wanted to get across. Mm. And that that kind of very short pre-match interview where he hits two phrases. The one is about Madison Square Garden not being a church, but it being holy ground and about being hungry for respect, not hungry for money. Like, those two lines are just killer to me and although you have Vince's kind of mildly self-sabotaging commentary throughout <laughs> the match about Brett like it just tells the perfect story and for me when I got back into wrestling in 99 obviously Steve Austin was the biggest thing going and when I'd been a fan as a kid like Brett was the biggest thing going certainly to me and for me I remember buying the VHS tape and realizing that these two intersected and I, I said this at the time as well, like I saw both videos and I didn't know about which was which, you know, the WrestleMania 13 and the Survivor Series 96. And the first one I bought was the Survivor Series 96. And and seeing this kind of great match between Brett and Austin, it's something that, yeah, I still enjoy going back and, and watching on a regular basis to this day. That's nice. MVP of the new generation then. Number five, Adam. The Undertaker. Any reason? Because we've discussed him on this show as being quite underutilised in that era. Yeah, but I just think as just being this constant presence, he's always there and he's just got this incredible ability to weather a storm and it's a shitstorm of crap opponents, but he still maintains his position on top and when he finally gets that 
the the chance to have matches with a higher caliber of opponent, he totally just raises his game, transforms how he operates, and just like he just adapts with the company. It's amazing. I don't know if I'm allowed one number five. Go on. It's not a wrestler. Feel free. It's not Vince, is it? Nobody did remember your list. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long shortlist, all fellas. It's a long shortlist. <laughs> do you understand the purpose of a shortlist? <laughs> I, I do. It starts as a long list and you wheedle it down. Weedle's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is it a word? Yeah, weedle is a word. Weedle, yeah. yeah. So, this, this might be quite an unpopular one, but Jim Cornette, actually, he's just very consistent. So, I think he gets a lot of um, challenging assignments... And I think he, I think he does the absolute best that he can with with whatever he's given. He got Mantar, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he got Mantar, and, and obviously he's got this Bob Holly and Bartigan in the new Midnight Express. And I think he gets given a lot of difficult roles. And actually, I think he does his best. And I, I think he's a perhaps an underappreciated part of the new generation era. So my number five, I've kind of done a Paul, and I've got two names. And they only very briefly cross over Mankind and Razor Ramon because I just think in both the roles those guys were asked to do, they excelled. So Razor as that kind of second tier baby face underneath a Brett or a Diesel, he was great at that. And Mankind, you know, he was given the job of feuding with The Undertaker in something more meaningful than like Isaac Yankum or Mabel or Karma or any of the dog shit he faced in like 95. So yeah, like those two guys for me both needed to be on this list and I couldn't in good conscience leave either of them out. Number four, the British Bulldog because I loved to watch him as a kid and then he was there again and he was playing a different type of character and he became part of that amazing, like the Hart family sort of thing that happened. And he was just, he just fit into it so perfectly. I think we could always rely on him in, well, not in every occasion, but he was generally reliable to produce some great matches. And his, his jawing with the crowd was always a source of amusement. Like, just fantastic. For me, number four is Mankind. And it's his willingness to go the extra mile to put other people over he's so generous with what he's willing to do and what he's willing to take in terms of bumps to enhance the people that he's working with and, and for me that is a you know very desirable quality to have my number four is owen hart because he's owen hart like he was someone from the minute they turn him heel who again is just able to perform to a particular level and Phil kind of you know he can be squashed by Diesel on In Your House 5 and he can rebound from that he can be your IC champion he can be your tag champion you know even towards the end they didn't utilise it but there was some potential there was like a baby face opposite Sean like my perception of things these days is that Owen's actually still underappreciated in terms of the variety of roles and the duration he performed the mat and the quality he performed the mat. My number three is Owen Hart, for many of those same reasons that you've just given there. But I think more than that, it's as we've gone throughout the timeline and you realise what type of a person he was. Yeah. Because I'd watched matches of his, I knew how good he was as, as a competitor... And obviously we saw more of that and he was just consistent in everything that he did. Weirdly, even his even his gaffed promos sort of make him more endearing. Yeah. 
But when you hear all the all the sort of like just how he behaved as a professional, how, what a great sense of humour he had, how no one seems to have any sort of a bad thing to say about Owen because he was just so eternally likeable. I mean, all this just paints this like great, great character. Number three, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I found this quite difficult with some of these people that aren't necessarily here the whole time. So people like, you know, Rock, you know, Kevin Sharma. So, you know, there's, there's a few people that perhaps come in part way through, but actually, Austin has had such an impact in his short time, and obviously, we, we've just got to the stage now where he's ready to carry that torch. But I think the amount of effort that he's put in, you know, his willingness to, you know, probably do stuff earlier than he should have on return from his neck injury. Yeah. Um, you know, so his commitment to the company, his commitment to the role and the quality of matches that he's been able to have and in some circumstances, given his limitations, um, have been admirable. Yeah, my number three is Stone Cold Steve Austin for essentially being the most entertaining person in the company for the last 18 months that we covered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're trying to judge people here not on everything they do, just on the era we watch. So... I kind of can't have him at number one, and I'm sure if we were discussing the Attitude Era, like I probably would have him at number one. But for the period we watched, yeah, he definitely needs to be on the list, but not quite top for me. Number two is Shawn Michaels. The man mm. you never gave the an man MVP I to. never gave an MVP to. He's which, still not. I still, <laughs> I, st- I still can't really believe he it. He fucking blocked us on Twitter yeah. for that. Uh, didn't block me, though. <laughs> amazing like ring performer and he'd probably be number one if it wasn't for his bellendish attitude but even with that attitude that he's got in our timeline he's still just outstanding in everything that he does in the ring number two for me is brett get out <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's a hard one but like for me if i'm going on the enjoyment and, and this is hardware i've got to, to some extent separate what i know happens you know, outside of what we watched to the content of which I saw, then this is the order that I that I would have them in terms of entertainment. So, yes, Brett is number two for me. My number two is Brett... No, it's Shawn Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, same as you, Adam, really, like the phenomenal in-ring contributions he made. You know, 96, without him, you know, would, would be unimaginable. Mm. Like and and you look at stuff like the ladder matches, they were great. You look at his tag stuff with Diesel, that was great. Like, yeah, through '97, was he a constant pain in the ass? Yes, he was. But again, his real high points there, like his performances of special referee at SummerSlam, the Hell in a Cell. Yeah, he has to be on the list, no matter how you feel about him. Yeah. And number one, who can it be? Who can it be? Manta. Well, the thing is that. I'm glad I've chosen this number one because I think that if I hadn't, Stuart would launch across the room and stab me in the neck. That's what this knife's for. (laughs) (laughs) Number one is Bret Hart because I think I was choosing these as in who's the most valuable person in this era of wrestling? Who's the person that I think of when I think about this era of wrestling? It's Bret Hart because he's there at the top. He's constantly outshining other people on shows. He just... He, he like maintains this amazing standard throughout the whole time, and he leaves in somewhat of a horrible way. Somewhat, somewhat of a horrible way, but that's in many ways quite late into where we were going, and he was just there as a consistent feature for all this change and all this transition of what the company was doing, and still maintained 
this amazing sort of quality in the ring and this constant sort of sitting on top, but his willingness to work in other different roles. And as we pointed out earlier, he can... Like, I don't think he spat out his toys that much because he was like underneath something on the card defending the title. So he's just very professional in his attitude for working. Number one, Jimmy Dowell, Shawn Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> it was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. yeah no, no, I thought it was very good. <laughs> no, he's got nothing to defend himself. <laughs> no, no, he was, yeah, you know, in terms of, for me, consistently in the most entertaining matches, it was him. My number one is Brett the Hitman Hart, because was it really ever going to be anyone else? <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. Adam, you actually hit a lot of the key points, I think, in your summary there. And I think if you were to go back and listen to our Wrestling with Shadows episode where I kind of talked about his top 10 matches from our era and that kind of thing, you'd get a lot of my feelings about Brett. And yeah, he was my childhood hero. So yeah, he's always going to be top of this list. I never knew you cared about him. (laughs) (laughs) But perhaps the most important topic we've come to discuss here today, and I'm sure people are listening with the most anticipation for this one, Mullet of the New Generation, 54321. Right, well, this is actually really, really tricky because although, you know, you need a lot of effort and a lot of desire and a lot of skill and talent to to become a great wrestler, you literally need the right genetics and a bit of time to have a really good mullet. So there are loads of them and there's there's too many to mention, but I've kind of shrunk it down to this list of... Five, make of it what you will. Number five, Lex, Lex Luger. Luger. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> he had to make his way in there somewhere. Not great in the ring, not great as a character, not great in terms of his work rate. Good haircut, though. Number four, it's everyone's favourite, it's Crush. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, just your favourite. Number three is my actual favourite, and this is... This has to make its way, and this is my own personal thing, because he was my childhood hero, the ultimate warrior, for when he returned back, and good God, was his hair glorious. Number two, oh, occupying the same fucking spot. Sean Michaels. Michaels. Yeah. yeah. Consistency really is the key here. He's a consistent <laughs> mullet all the way through. He starts to lose it as we end our timeline, and it's getting just more into long hair. Yeah. But he's got a cracking mullet for the majority of our timeline. And now he looks like Albert Steptoe. And number one, who could it be? Who could it be? But the man that shattered the earth with his hair, it's Ricky Morton. I didn't really think it was going to be anyone else. I know he only appeared very sporadically, Mm. but when he did appear, he made such an impact. Oh, yes, he did. And on that bombshell, or (laughs) non-bombshell, as the case may be, it's time to wrap up today's episode. But before we can go, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, here are the top five ways you can support the show. Number four plus one. Give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash new generation project podcast, a follow on Twitter at new gen podcast or on Instagram at new gen podcast and interact with us. Number three plus one. Leave us a five star review and some kind words on iTunes. Number two plus one. Take a look at our back catalogue that's going up one by one on botchamania.com, including video episodes. Number one plus one. 
check out some of the absolutely free bonus content that we post regularly over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast featuring matches from the WWE, NXT, Chikara, Michinoku Pro and All Japan Pro Wrestling. Number one to the power of five. And if you don't mind giving a little something back, you can pledge to us over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast. As I said last time, we really do need to thank those of you who have continued to support the show during our absence, as it does cost money to keep the shows online, and our patrons have allowed the episodes to stay accessible for all. Going forward, we'll be doing more pieces of audio solely for our patrons that we'll reveal soon. Episode 97. We'll see us count down some of the most memorable moments in the history of the podcast in an episode that we're calling, I'd have to say, the best of the New Generation (laughs) Project podcast. (laughs) And while we're here, as the next episode will have somewhat of a different format, I'll confirm that episode 98 will see us take another look at where we began by re-reviewing King of the Ring 1993. (laughs) We're just going to do the whole thing again. Yep. Has our opinion changed? No. Let's carry on. I don't know, Mom might have. But this is King of the Ring 93 special edition. Like, we're going to George Lucas the shit out of episode one. We're going to replace Scrivens with CGI. We're going to put loads of random crap in the background. We're going to add a load of scenes in that you don't care about. You know, director's cut. That, that's what people do when they finish stuff, right? That's what George Lucas does. Well, yeah, exactly. And we're just like George Lucas. Yeah, you know, it kind of like it rhymes. It's poetry. (laughs) How do you feel about watching King of the Ring 93 again? Because it's almost five years since we watched it. I'm quite excited to watch it again, actually. Because, like, recording it with better equipment will make me happier. So that's kind of the reason I want to do it, is that, yeah, like, episode one of all the episodes is the most painful to listen to. And it doesn't have trademarks of the show, like clips and stuff like that, and Mullet of the Night and things like that. So I think there's no harm in just going back and, you know, reminding ourselves of where we started. So are we going to take episode one offline and sneakily replace it with this? No, this will be 98 when it eventually goes up. But yeah, 97 to come before it with with the best of. That should be quite exciting. Like I mentioned earlier, do go to our Facebook page and help us out by telling us where exactly your favourite moments are and I can take a look and see if it makes the list. All right. Something to look forward to. My name is Stuart Brooks. I shall say goodbye. I'm Adam Watch. Goodbye. I am Paul Scrivens. I will see you soon, good people. Goodbye. I said, are you ready for the Survivor Series? One. Who will survive?